Welcome to the Antiso Social Podcast, episode 10. I've reached the milestone of 10. I had no idea if I'd make it this far, but uh, so far, so good. Uh, massive thanks to everyone who's uh, listening. First time listeners, welcome. Hope you stick around, listen to future episodes, and go back and have a listen to some of the cool ones we've done to date. Some really cool guests that I've had, and uh, lots of cool guests in the pipeline as well in the future. So, hope you enjoy this one and hopefully stick around as well. Uh, this episode is not brought to you by my 1997 championship season under 14 boys runners-up trophy from the Redcliffe Basketball Association. Now, keyword or key phrase after this trophy is runners-up. That's right, we didn't win, but we got a trophy. Now, this is the only sporting trophy I've ever got. My sporting career as a, as a child was uh, limited and full of failures. Um, I played cricket, rugby league, touch football, basketball, and never really excelled in any of them. I was pretty dismal in every single one, and I was always on the reserve, on the bench. I was always, you know, playing rugby league. I was left out in the wing when you're a kid. Uh, that usually means you're, you're slow and fat and can't play properly. Uh, when you're playing professionally, it usually means you're a fast fast runner, but in primary school, it's uh, it's very different. And you knew it when you were a kid, and it's, uh, it's unfortunate. But uh, this was the only trophy I ever got, so... Even though we didn't we didn't win, and um, we were in the uh, championship game, and we were runners up, we were second place. We 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 were the losers, and we got a loser trophy. Funny story. Um, the only other time I ever came close to getting a trophy was when we were living in Rockhampton, uh, and I was in primary school, and we used to play club basketball. Uh, basketball was massive in the nineties. Basketball cards, as I've mentioned before, uh, really popular, and the NBA was really popular at the time in Australia. NBL was going great, like great uh, coverage in Australia and so naturally a lot of people at school were into basketball and a lot of us played club basketball and I don't know how long I played for but I played for a, f- a few seasons I was actually quite impressed that I played for that long I really really loved basketball as opposed to rugby league or cricket where you did that through school and you just did it because you had to and I didn't really enjoy it that much I actually dreaded it a lot of the time because I just wasn't wasn't good at it whatsoever it was it was quite stressful actually I feel sorry for kids that struggle I think sport's great and I think it's, it has a lot of positive uh, qualities but you know not everybody is an outdoorsy type of person and not everybody is uh, is athletic so to speak and you know kids can be assholes and if you're not good at something then you you can become a target I didn't have the the best of experiences playing those sports but basketball was was fun I you know basketball was the sport they were best at so anyway at the end of the season we came last in the uh, in the league that year and the coach that we had put on an end of year barbecue end of season barbecue at the courts like at the at the place where we, we play our games so which was really cool and uh it was gonna be trophy night so what what they did it was quite a it was a very thoughtful sort of thing that they put on the tape, like you know, put out there, was that everybody got a trophy, uh, you know, and they just made up, tro- like, awards. So, you know, you know, I-, I can't remember what they were, but it would have been something like, you know, fastest runner or best three-point shooter or whatever, most dedicated or most passionate. You know, just we're all kids and, you know, you just need that. It's just positive reinforcement. So they end up doing the awards. And so we're sitting there, we had a barbecue and, and whatever, and they started handing out awards. And, and I, was, I was so excited. I was waiting for this you know, for a trophy. And then as it kept going, I just, I, I, my name wasn't getting called out. I just kind of, oh, I'll get there, I'll get there. Maybe I'm going to be one of the last ones. And anyway, they got to the end and they said, well, that's it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for a great season. Um, you know, we'll we'll kick back off again in a few months' time or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. Thanks so much. And I hadn't got a trophy. And I just sat there and, you know, I'm a kid. So I'm I'm getting emotional. Now, I'm trying to keep it in. I'm trying to, like, bite my tongue 
trying to keep the tears in and just trying, you know, just suck it up a bit. And I asked somebody, I said, oh, I didn't get a trophy. It was either the coach or one of the other people, parents from from the team that was helping out. And they sort of had this look going, oh, 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 sorry, you know, and oh, we forgot. We'll we'll get you one. That's okay. And I can't remember exactly what the conversation was, but it was definitely this awkward sort of feeling like, oh, we we missed a kid. (laughs) And I don't know what the outcome of it was. I never got a trophy. I don't know whether they actually sort of followed through with with, uh, trying to pick one up or whatever but the moment was gone and I was absolutely shattered and I remember being in the car on the way home and I was sitting in the back seat and I just I just held it in I held it in and I was just I was so upset and I just I was I could have just burst out crying I just I had never felt so forgotten and uh, left out and you know when you're a kid it's uh it can be quite a traumatic thing and the fact that it's still you know, for the most part, is quite vivid in my head, and you know, I'm I'm 31 now. <laughs> it's um, it's obviously been traumatic. So you know, several years later, I'm playing uh, playing basketball again down in uh, Redcliffe, um, in high school, and uh, and we get this trophy. And you know what? It was runners up. We lost, but I got a trophy, and it just it just made it sweeter knowing that I missed out all those years ago, and I finally got a trophy. And it still sits on a shelf in my lounge room because. You know, it's just, it's it's so pathetic in a way, but at the same time, it's a good laugh because I missed out and I missed out from a trophy for coming last in a league. And this time I got a trophy for coming second out of an entire league. And it was only a small league, but we, we played the championship game. So, you know what? It was, uh, it was bittersweet. So this episode is not brought to you by my 1997 championship season under 14 boys runners-up trophy from the Redcliffe Basketball Association. I'll chuck a photo up of this uh, bad boy onto the uh, fake sponsors photo gallery on Facebook so you can check it out. Um, If you've got any really crappy trophies that you got over the years, take a photo and chuck it in the comments of of this picture just so we can all have a bit of a laugh because there's some pretty ridiculous ones that you get over the years and a lot of those uh, participation trophies or awards even if you don't get it even if it's not a trophy and you've got like a medal or a certificate or something like that you know those ones where you sort of you're pretty crap or you you, you you didn't do well but you just got that participation one that that pat on the back like yeah well done you participated you know so if you've got anything like that take a photo and chuck it in the comments of this one it's something um, we can have a laugh and and exchange stories plenty more crap sponsors to come along uh so this episode is episode 10 and is with a would made a bond from Adelaide called Shane Bailey. Uh, Shane runs B Music, which is a music store based out of, uh, well, it's Gawler, which is it's pretty much Adelaide so in South Australia. And uh, Shane's been very closely aligned in with us over the years. We use Shane's store to purchase all of our music, music equipment, our gear. Uh, he's helped us uh, get ESP endorsements and he's heavily linked in with ESP Guitars. He's been the ESP Dealer of the Year for the last 10 years straight. He also has a heavy online presence, so um, which you know naturally that's how we, we uh, get all of our gear from him. Obviously, we can't just head over to Adelaide and go to his store. And, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of interesting stories. A lot of, uh, you know, he's um, an ex-musician. Still, you know, still plays, but, uh, you know, definitely a different capacity these days to what he used to do. And, uh, yeah, it's just a good conversation. This is a, this is a pretty lengthy one. This is one where we just went off on a whole bunch of tangents, uh, lots of good um, observations with what the music scene's like these days, what a lot of artists fail to do. Even for someone who's not a musician or a music fan, will still 
find this interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, sometimes it gets a little bit techy, uh, especially when he starts talking about some of his uh, Metallica signature guitars that he's got in his collection. <laughs> but uh, look, I think there's a lot of lot of cool stuff in here, and I'm sure a lot of people will get something out of it. I will have links for everything uh, that's mentioned in the episode in the show notes, and we'll uh, provide some more information at the end of this episode. But uh, yeah, enjoy. Take a bit of time listening to this because it's a lengthy one. So you know, use this for your commute, or if you're at the gym, or at home, or wherever it is. Blank it out a bit of time and uh, and have a listen and um, I hope you, hope you enjoy it. And this is Shane Bailey. Hello. Hello, sir. That's working better. <laughs> Takes me about ten goes to get it working. That was only three, so you're, you're ahead of the game. Getting better. <laughs> What's going on? Ah, I don't know, mate. I'm actually lying in bed. Oh, this well, is, this I'm wearing uh, jeans and a... Top. This is going downhill already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just had a quantum computerist or something on, so might as well bring the level down with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I guess um, probably the first question I had for you, just and this will probably set the tone of where which direction we go with this, but can you describe to me what South Australia is like and in particular where you live in Gore? And you can and you can describe this in any way. You can take the serious path, yeah, or you can, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you no. can go the other way. Well, I, I, it's pretty slow. I live about forty-five minutes from the city north, and uh, Snowtown's about another forty-five minutes. So, dead in the middle of those two. If that's for geographical reference, <laughs> I lived uh, down near the beach till I was about. 12, 11, and then moved up here the other side of the city because my brother was getting older and there was not much down there at the time. Now it's all touristy and that, but back then it wasn't. And I went to school here and stayed here and worked around, mainly around here. I know when I left school I was working all over the place, but then when I got into teaching it was more around here. It's a lot of farming and shit like that. It's pretty laid back. People hang a lot of shit on it, but depends what you want out of it, I suppose. And it's cheaper to live, you know. You're not paying a million dollars for a house with four bedrooms. And, yeah, I, I still know all my mates I sort of grew up with and some of them moved away, but most of them are still around. It's not a bad place to be up kids and that, obviously. Probably better than most parts of Sydney anyway. Well, yeah, I only visited a few times. I went there for a wedding when we were about 18 or 19. We all went over there to Shell Harbour. Oh, yeah, yeah. At that stage, is the closest I got, and that was uh, through Dapto and all that sort of stuff. It's yep. pretty interesting. Yeah, and that was the first experience of an RSL club because they don't have them here. I mean, we didn't have pokies for here then either. It wasn't; it just didn't exist, you know. So we don't have big leagues clubs and shit like that. Like that there, it's completely different. And when pokies came in here, it's sort of decimated live music, and it, it's coming back. It's come back in the last probably ten years, but it did have a big impact initially. We've sort of only just been going through that probably in the last. Well, probably in the last 10 years here where the pokies have sort of come back in full force and ripped out a lot of live venues because it's and just came, it's far easier. Was, was it my understanding they used to only be exclusive to leagues clubs or is that not been the case? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it, was, uh, what it was in New South Wales, but it's uh, as far as I've always known and, you know, me being the, the, the youngin that I am... <laughs> they're they're pretty much everywhere. I mean, they're 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 in all bars and clubs. But it, I think it got to a point where a lot of live music started to sort of quieten down a bit, especially with the introduction of sort of you know, uh, Foxtel became a lot cheaper. Yeah. 
uh, all the console games, your PlayStations and Xboxes and everything really started to become quite popular. So for a lot of people, it was easy just to stay at home and get pissed instead of going out into the city and catching public transport to see live music. It also impacts before that because kids, you know, go hang out with your mates and play music as as a... you know, starting high school or halfway through high school and you might have gone around your mates and jammed, but now they'll play each other on Battlefront or whatever they have, you know. They, they don't, they're not playing music as much in that regard. The ones that are, are doing it the same as we've done for generations, but I don't know that there's as many kids getting into the social aspect of playing together, you know what I mean? Like you're playing music together. Oh. You know, they, they, they converse online and they shoot the shit out of each other online and all this sort of stuff technology obviously yeah I think it's definitely the case and and I think even thinking really simply with you know your smartphones and everything people are are more fixated with their faces in their phones and I'm I'm a I'm a sucker for that as well and you find that you spend more time with your face in your phone than you do honing a cr- honing your craft or trying to find uh, different things yeah. to to develop and, and improve and, and even from a social aspect as well I think yeah that, it's odd for me because I sort of I was I'm probably the age I was about oh shit I must have been early 20s when my boss sort of started but only sort of one of my mates had one and you know, I'd, I'd have to remember his phone number to ring him up you know, on a Friday night where we're going and he'd be the guy with the mobile phone and it was like a brick <laughs> and he went to Sydney because it was the old Nokia with the snake game on it and he got through in some radio competition for the best snake players it was just, just fucking pixels of a black snake yeah. coming down some thing and he had to play in a pool full of snakes or some shit to try and win some ultimate prize <laughs> but, actually I didn't have a mobile phone until I had the shot because I resisted it for a long time because it didn't interest me Mm. So the first mobile I got was 15 years ago, I suppose. But obviously all that's changed too, the smartphone. So I, I'm in the, in the middle a little bit in that I grew up without it, but the internet was sort of coming on when I was, I guess, uh, very late teens, you know, dial-up and everything. Mm. And, and it just became a, something that was there, but not something that dominated everything. And oh. then paradox to that is that my business is largely based on the internet, without the internet. A lot of our business doesn't exist, so... That's a, that's a perfect segue, because one of the things I was going to ask you is when... I mean, I've only visited your store once, and I tell you what, it's a, it's a quiet town out there. There's, oh, yeah. there's We've no- got 11 pubs. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's the most. Something that's the most that, important. Yeah. That's the most important thing. At least you're well covered. Well, then yeah, there's one directly across the road. Well, you don't have to go too far to find one either way, but there's one across the road. Oh, that's perfect. But, uh, yeah, when I when I was teaching, that was my living. I used to supply some of the school with gear. You just couldn't get it, you know. And at the time, the big things were Pro Audio in Canberra and venues. You can see the mail, all the things. And there was no one selling online. And you sort of started getting the. the point of trying to find things overseas that you couldn't get here so i actually existed online before the shop with knowing that there was this there was this building in the, in the main street that i kind of wanted and, and and knew of and it used to be a music shop beforehand i used to teach there for the guy and i knew he was going to be out eventually and i wanted that building so i sort of set up the website selling on that sort of thing beforehand and back in the day Netscape Composer is what you used to use to build websites and learn HTML through Notepad because all those editor things that what you see is what you get editors were a pain in the ass so build a site and then got this property and when we got in it was full of white ants so it took about three months for them to fix that, it's it's rental it's not not my expense but 
I couldn't trade. So we were trading online effectively before we opened, and that was 2001. And there were much, many less players, obviously, in the e-commerce caper back then. And we, we, we've had customers, obviously, from all around the world ever since. There's a lot more competition now, but we've always tried to specialise in something specific that give us a point of difference, you know. So out of the store, which is three stories, but we really only use the middle story for trade, the ten, fifteen thousand dollar guitars aren't hanging up in the shop, you know, they're they're stored somewhere. Um, there's there's plenty of room for storage and security and all the rest of it. But people come for those sort of things know what they're looking for and you know, you get your conversation going even if you don't know who they are and you show them around and show them all these things and you can only fit so much stuff on a retail floor. Yeah. And it's not a big shop in the that ground floor set up and of course there's security issues as well you know people rip them off mm. so you know we we do uh, it depends on the time of year we're not purely online we do probably half and half and even then the online there, there's a guy that lives behind me that buys drumsticks online from us i don't even know if he knows that we're in the main street he literally <laughs> his back fence is on my back fence and he, he gets them delivered so go figure <laughs> Jeez. It's bizarre. You, you, you spun out the things that people buy online, either because they can't find them anywhere else, or they just couldn't be bothered. That's it. You know? And I think it, so I it's definitely the latter for a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. On the way home, I thought he put them on his front step, and he probably think, "Fucking hell, it's lightning fast living for those guys." That's because a few. I was going to say that's customer service. That yeah, man. I never met the dude. <laughs> uh, I hear the slipknot coming out of his place fairly often, but. Yeah, we met him. And there's a couple of guys that initially bought like that with buy online and then realise we're here or they don't live far from here and then realise we're here. It's it's, it's interesting to me because obviously when you started buying online back in the day, of it was all almost Wild West. Mm. You knew everything about the person before you were willing to dish over your dough. Yeah. But people will buy from you and then after they get it, go, oh, shit, I didn't realise you were there. Well, that's the first thing I'm going to find out is you know, to work out if this prick's legit. Where's he? Where's his shop? You know, how do I get in touch with him if I need to get in touch with him? But I guess people are—I don't know—either more trusting or just more intuitively know that you, you're a genuine operation because you don't look dodgy or they've seen your, your name around and they, they just don't place where you are. Oh, the name—the name definitely helps getting a bit of branding out there. But I'm a—I'm a sucker for that. I just—I just—I just automatically trust online business now and and I, I guess probably because I've been lucky I haven't really been ripped off so I, until that yeah. happens I'll just blindly just throw money at random people on the internet and get the things that I want until it yeah. until it comes back and bites me on the ass. I guess it's a lot less prevalent these days that the scammers don't go to the trouble of building websites unless it's something like Olympic ticket scandal or something like that where they're trying to ram people and set up a fake Olympic ticket site. There's no point in them going to the trouble of trying to set up a website, trying to get on Google, trying to get legit looking mm. when they can just send out Nigerian you know, letters instead to a million people and see who bites. <laughs> um, do you have any uh, reverse scamming methods for your Nigerian colleagues? Oh, you know, I, I do enjoy that. It gives me uh, great pleasure, but uh, it's time-consuming. More time-consuming for me than it is for them, which is a stupid part about it. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I've still got one on the go now, but I haven't written back to her. She's, she was dying, but um, she, she managed to live every time I write back. She's still going. Oh, good on her. I'll get to her eventually. Oh, she's fighting a good fight, you know. <laughs> 
Cherish these pictures. You've kept them uh, for keepsake. I did one. One was a long one. It sort of started went back when the ESP USA forums quite big. We sort of got one going and, and on our forum, and I thought oh, I'll document this one. And I got a that was the one where I got a copy of their driver's license, and it was Princess Mary's driver's license <laughs> back when she was Australian. It was Mary Donaldson. <laughs> <laughs> so they found a scan of Mary Donaldson's uh, license somewhere, and, and that was their proof of identity. And it was a, um, it was supposedly a church group. And it was actually, it was after the Victorian bushfires. These pricks were using that as saying that their Guyanian relatives were in the bushfires, these assholes. Oh. So they, they're the ones that they sort of prompted me to you know, string these copies along. And um, well, there's guys that have gone to the lengths of sending them bags of rocks or boxes of rocks to, to Nigeria or Guyana or wherever it is and putting the value of the thing at $2,000 or $3,000. They're thinking they're going to get a bunch of computers or something. <laughs> And then they pay the duty on it, thinking that they're going to get this. You know what I mean? And yeah. so it costs them. But either, some people are really intricate with them. They end up getting money out of them, not not for personal. They don't generally. They don't get the money. They make them pay money somehow because yeah. some people think, "Oh, you're being cruel," but it's it's run by these uh, operations. They call these guys lads. So these kingpins of it uh, are doing it to hundreds of people at a time. The, the gangs that they're running. Yeah. And yeah. You know, they don't need the money uh, necessarily, but the lads doing it, I don't know how much they get out of it, but it's just, you know, it's wrong. Mm. And when they use a thing like the bushfire thing, it's, you, know, you ask what, this is one that I'll take action on, but yeah. not that. Yeah, it gives me more satisfaction. They can give a shit. You know, they'd probably cop it all day long, but, you know. Oh look, is. yeah. If you can get if you can get a laugh out of it, I guess it's uh, it's it's uh, yeah. it's worth doing. It, do you know if that that thread's still around on that forum, or is it long gone by uh, now? No, it is somewhere on our forum. Yeah, I'll have to it's try and kick around somewhere. I'll have to try um, and find it. And, and some of the references get a bit odd because you're talking about different vowels for amplifiers. It's coffins that, that we're supposed to be doing from or something. But it got to that point. And uh, there was sort of insight forum jokes on the ESP USA one that were about kiss caskets, and I think that's where it started. Yeah. And uh, we're going to install the L34s and 606s and KDA8s and all this other crap, which didn't make much sense to someone outside that side of it, but the the rest of the thing makes sense. Um, that was where Medic Industries was born. Uh, Phil and Paul Medic, the, the two brothers operated that in uh, Medic Industries, and that's where we grew from and had the Dick logo. <laughs> And he, he held out the picture of the dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, I think there was another one, but yeah, there, 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 it was like a, a dick industry splashed across this sort of silhouetted penis, and the guy's holding it up in front of some woman's face. I don't know what that was about. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we sort of went from there. I got all sorts of gear out of that. That was the Mary Donaldson one. The dick industries was born. Paul and Phil dick. The, the empire began. Yep, Phil and Paul, Paul and Phil, Phil and Paul, the Medic brothers. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to find that uh, that thread on the forum and, and chuck the link up there so people can check it out. 
<laughs> going back to what you're saying about uh, sort of online business, do you ever see in the future you packing up shop again, going back to just being purely online? Well, you can't. Realistically, you can't do that in Australia because the, the supply of most major brands in Australia is controlled by distributors. Mm. And a distributor has a, um, a, a system in place where you need a bricks and mortar store to be able to get access to their stock, which is fair enough because yeah. if you're going to have any brand, uh, you've got a commitment to the brand in terms of the amount of stock you're going to carry and then to present that stock to a potential punter. In America, it's very different. They have... It's just such a foothold online only that, that there are stores that exist that aren't um, bricks and mortar. Mm. It's a it's a different setup there completely. But mm. here in Australia, because of the distributors control it, if you have a brand that isn't represented like that, it is quite interesting. If you take a smaller brand who say doesn't have a distributor in Australia, people think that you know the distributors are making all the money and why don't we cut them out and all that sort of thing. And it is a, a wonderful thing to think of. But brands that aren't represented by distributors aren't uh, as widely consumed. Mm-hmm. So when it came to say, um, like it might be a pedal manufacturer, and he thinks, oh no, bugger, I'm not going to get a distributor. I'm just going to sell direct to shops. What happens then is a lot of a lot of people that aren't uh, bricks and mortar stores will tell these guys that they are bricks and mortar stores because they, they might want to have a bricks and mortar store because they want to get their stuff out to punters and see it on the showroom floor. Yeah. They'll tell the manufacturer they are a bricks and mortar store because they know they're never going to check, and then they get it. And then a lot of bricks and mortar stores won't buy something that is sold by non-bricks and mortar stores because you can't compete with the price. And, and oftentimes these guys aren't even GST declaration because they're not even making enough money. So they're always going to beat you on the price. Mm. And they've got a day job. So you're not you're not, not buying the product because it's no good. It's just you can't sell it because someone's going to beat your price because they have no expenses. Mm. There's, there's fuck all money in it as it is. But to, to buy $1,000 worth or $2,000 worth just to buy a small pedal range and have it sit there, you know, you could have been buying a thousand, two thousand dollars or something that will actually sell. Yeah, and it probably bite the bite the person on the ass anyway. The people who are manufacturing the the product it, anyway. It always does, yeah. yeah. It, it, it ends up doing that. So when say we we brought Comparison into Australia originally, and Comparison's a great company, still make great guitars, but the parent company in Japan was was going belly up. Mm. And what they were doing, so we were the distributor, a guy called Steen in Denmark was a distributor, Guitar Asylum in, in um, Denmark was a, sorry, in, in New York was also a seller. So there weren't many internationals doing it. When this company was going tits up, they were back doing it to Japanese buyers. Well, actually, uh, Gaijins in Japan who were selling it, they knew they were selling it to them because they were going to sell it overseas. They couldn't sell it to guys back doing it in Japan who could then sell it in Japan because that would affect their deal network. So what they were doing is selling it to guys they knew were going to sell it overseas. Yeah. These guys were selling it on eBay for less than I was paying for it. Yeah, right. Because we would buy our stock and we're not going to place an order every week for the stock. You know, we've got to import it and, and we buy a bunch at a time. We're not going to buy one here and one here and whatever else. So to keep their cash flow going, they're back doing this stuff for these Japanese guys who were selling it. I think they're actually Westerners. And so that made it impossible for us to sell it, made it impossible for Steam to sell it, made it impossible for Sarsine to sell it. So we ended up dropping the brand and then the company went tits up and, and it's now... The comparison, it wasn't comparison, it went belly up, it was their parent. Mm. It was an importer into a Japan of Randall Amps and things like that as well. It's now owned by a UK company who must have had some sort of wholesale relationship with it, who's been trying to get it back, but now it's not in these stores. Like It, it, it was in brought in by a, a store in Canberra, they brought in for a little while after us. 
there was a gap in between. That gap in between here and in Europe, it affected the brand in those markets. So in the UK, it's doing okay because that's where this uh, owner's based. But in Australia, no one talks about it anymore. Mm. But that wasn't... We initially probably would have thought, oh, it's internet hype and all that sort of crap that, that people, this brand is getting recognition. But at the end of the day, because it wasn't in sto- stores and people weren't buying them and playing them out and things like that, it just doesn't get seen and it just drops away. So that's the risk that the manufacturer runs by handling their own distribution or... You know, the distributors in Australia, they are the ones that are paying for the marketing, paying for the endorsements and all those sort of things most of the time, mm. uh, sometimes even paying for the warranty. So they do have a lot of expenses. We don't agree with everything that all distributors do, but, you know, by and large, they they get the product to Australia. It's definitely definitely far more crucial for, for gear um, as opposed to, like, we always have the debate about uh, music distribution and trying to yeah. make sure it's covered by as many places, especially in Australia now because a lot of music stores have just been, you know, they've, they've died off and you've only got yeah, the monopoly yeah, of JB do. Hi-Fi and yep. they're, they're cutting back their music sections now and replacing it with, yeah. with every every other product under the sun and you sort of go, is it is it really worth going through the heartache of, of signing some sort of distribution deal to try and get into shops when, for the most part, there's there's a lot of other ways to get get you even just a physical cd out to people but um, for yeah. for gear it's far harder because you can't oh, just yeah, you can't just uh physical promote stuff as it? yeah absolutely so. like the, the record store now uh town closed down a few years ago and, and the only place to buy a cd in this town is big w and it's only top 20 yeah and people come into our shop looking for a cd shop i've never seen them before mm. they come in and ask where's the cd shop and we don't know one look at me like it's my fucking fault <laughs> you're the dude that i've never seen in that record shop before you're the dude that you know, now that andre Ryu's got a new fucking album out you want to buy it all of a sudden <laughs> where's the rest of the music you've been buying from it's probably online which there's nothing wrong with that but you can't but i guess it, small record stores in it, more of a cottage industry type thing would be the ideal but unless vinyl keeps growing it's probably not viable for anyone anywhere in the first six months of this year in the u.s vinyl sales doubled the revenue from youtube music and spotify ad supported uh, and all the other ad supported streaming mm. vinyl doubled its revenue to the, to the artist. Now, you wouldn't think that. Your vinyl's growing 50%, but you think that, oh, Spotify's the new saviour and all this sort of bullshit. They're paying back fuck all to the industry oh, in their ad-supported revenue. So if vinyl keeps growing or people start wanting a tangible product again, one that they can open up a gatefold and, you know, consume it in the way we used to, there's no point to have a record shop. And, and, and for you, like, where are you going to put it, like you say, unless there's a... a, a dedicated shops that are doing and presenting it the way you want it presented there's no benefit to you that's it and like most of the most of the stores that still exist anyway and the ones that are credible and are worthwhile yeah. for your time are independent stores and they're ones that you can deal with directly you don't have to be through yes. a distributor with a, with a ridiculous deal where they're getting cuts off your album whatever you can deal directly to them export straight through wholesale they can take a bunch yep. of copies if you want to depending on the place you can do some sort of consignment deal but most places are pretty good depending on on your reputation as a band new profile uh, most yeah. most places are, are at least willing to to trial it with a couple of copies and then you go from there and it's a lot more diy and a lot more work i mean you yeah. you're not you're not uh, palming it off to a, a, a 
you know, a distribution company, but you get a lot more return out of it in, in that sense. In some ways, it's also weeded out those stores that you might have done a consignment deal with, or even those small labels that you might have done a consignment deal with who never presented your product. Uh, absolutely. You know, That's a shitty operation. Definitely, definitely. I think, I think with, uh, with the independent stores that are still around, and there's not many left, um, I reckon I reckon you'll probably find that'll be a couple that will pop up and reopen or or new stores will open yeah. but because as you said with the vinyl thing there's there's definitely a resurgence with it and I think people as you said are after the tangible stuff again and yeah. any of these successful ventures they're not they can't just afford to be your stock standard CD record store with a bunch of racks and that's it you're gonna have yeah. to like uh, there's a place in Sydney here Utopia Records and they they really sort of have a variety of different things memorabilia and and merchandise as well as your music and they do all their band in-store signings they they're heavily involved with you know the live scene and promoters and whatnot so they bring a whole experience to the store where people actually go there for on a social yeah. basis to meet up with people like and a destination store with absolutely the stores would reference it that's it and that's what a lot of stores used to be i mean even 10 15 years ago when i was living in brisbane there was a couple of really great stores and for a for a kid going into the city for the day with a couple of mates you would just go and hang out in these stores and talk to the yeah. people in there or just start making conversation and discovering new music and bands and buying buying crappy cds from the bargain bin because they got a great album cover and then crying on the way home when you realize it's shit but it was all part of it was all part of the experience <laughs> yeah, I got actually. I got. I, I remember buying that from HMV because it was two dollars, and I thought, oh yeah, Van Halen, awesome, two dollars, and uh, that yeah, was well, that was a regret. I had to wait till it, the day it come out. And- you know, wait and wait and wait and you get a special tin with a pick in it and all this other shit and I listened to it that day and I reckon it's the last time I listened to it. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Oh, we did that in our own little town record store. There actually was two record stores here. Uh, it's not a big town. Mm. And you'd sort of bounce back and forth between the two depending on what they had. And I think I stopped shopping at one when my, it would have been White Snake Slip of the Tongue album, yeah. my cassette, yeah. um, chewed up in the, in the car and you know there's a certain sort of chew up to a tape that you know you can attribute to your machinery and there's a chew up to a tape that you want to lay back on the manufacturing <laughs> so the pencil didn't fix it so I, I took it back and uh, I asked the guy you know can you help me can you buy stuff there all the time because this, this just shattered itself straight away oh you know I've seen what I can do I've sent it back to the company oh it's a hassle and all the rest of it you know I got it back uh, sometime later and realised that he I, I can't remember how I worked it out but it was like a it was the old G tape 90s or whatever he used to have he's taped it on because oh, I could hear the click of the fucking double tape deck he <laughs> taped it onto a reel and put the reels inside the case and closed the case again uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> oh cassettes and now they're coming back oh they are they are I've um I went through a phase uh, a few years ago um, when I was still in Brisbane and they would have um, these big book fests, these charity book fests. And, and because cassettes, you know, everyone's just trying to get rid of them and chuck them out, they'd have these trestle yeah. tables filled with cassettes. And that's how I discovered heaps of bands when I was, when I was sort of oh, yeah. in my early teens because they were like 10 cents a cassette. No one wanted them. So I just took a whole bunch of plastic bags and started filling these plastic bags up full of cassettes. And now I've got about 400 of the things which I don't just sit on a shelf collecting dust, but yeah. that's how I discovered heaps of heaps of rock and metal oh, stuff. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, it was, 
you had the whole Twisted Sister collection on cassette, and then uh, I, I've still got all my double tape decks everywhere because I might have a use for them shortly. All these kids doing short runs of cassettes, and come in, might do it, and I'll dub them all for them. <laughs> See, the limited edition cassette release, yeah, the, the cult but demo. But they don't have to do 30 or even half a week. doing a run of 30 cassettes at the moment. Oh, I don't know what they're worth, but it's, I mean, it's it's pretty, uh, um, what's the word, cheesy sort of thing, I guess, but the kids never even knew what a cassette was. Yeah, so, that's it. Oh, it's, it's, why not? It's retro now, isn't it? And and people love love something retro, jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, I know I've kept all my cassettes, but I'm the first one to admit they sound like shit. Yeah, and you, if you really dug on a song, there's a click at the end and the start of it because you wore the fucking thing out. And <laughs> uh, who knows what speed it's? Oh, I remember because you'd play along with it, you know, you'd be learning this thing, and then if you didn't really understand what tuning was all about relative to the cassette, and after you thought you'd nailed it, you'd done it. I don't know how many dozen times. It's like, oh, fucking, don't do guitar and tune with cassette anymore. Everything <laughs> <laughs> straight to the buggery. And then you finally upgrade to a CD and then you realise that the song's completely different to how you've been listening to it on cassette. Yeah. You know? And I was a fairly late adopter to CDs too because I, 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 I'm somewhat tied to things. I'm, I'm hard to change. And my first CD, and my brother had bought it and it was Gary Moore Still Got The Blues. I think that was probably 87 or something. It was still LPs and cassettes, you know. Yeah. It, it took me a long time to get into CDs, but, you know, same with DVDs for that matter. I was still fucking running the VHS. <laughs> well, I'm... I'm it's, a bit, it's that thing again, that age where I'm sort of halfway between these two things. You know? I'm 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 like that with uh, with Blu-ray. I just I yep. can't. It doesn't interest me whatsoever. And I know a lot of people. I've actually just, never watched a Blu-ray. I uh, think the PlayStation does it, but I don't own a Blu-ray. Yeah. If I go into shop and I and I see a Blu-ray and a DVD, I think, oh, if I buy the one with the, that blue thing on it, does that mean I can't play it wherever I feel like playing it? Which I assume is the case. Yeah. And so I always go, nah, I better play it. So then I just pick up the DVD, you know. Oh, and and I've got a Blu-ray player, but I don't think I even own a Blu-ray like a disc. I just I just got yeah. it because that was the the you know the the name and and seemed to be the popular choice to to get. And I thought, oh well, just in case I decide to start picking up Blu-rays, I better get a player yeah. for it. And uh, I mean, I walk into stores and I see you know the the big big screens with the Blu-ray you know movies or concerts yeah. where they're played. And yeah, I mean, it looks pretty crystal clear, but Fuck, I don't, I don't give a shit about that. I mean, Tim, Tim loves that stuff. He, he knows all. I mean, he's a gadget freak, and um, yeah. you know, he can tell the smallest of differences. And for me, I just that stuff glazes over. Like, I just, I have no idea. I mean, it, it took me ages to get into DVDs. I've still got all my VHS uh, yeah. tapes all sitting, collecting dust, and I get frustrated because I can't watch them anymore. And <laughs> and and I go to like. You know, every once in a while I'll go to like a, a charity store to see if I can find some cool old CDs and then I go past the VHS shelf and they and it's all the same stuff in there because no one wants it and it's about, you know, buy 10 yeah, for a dollar or whatever it is. And uh, yeah. and I and I look and I find like, I, I was in, actually I was in a store in Adelaide um, last year and I found some really cool Rush uh, videos and they were like five bucks each and I thought, oh, I'm going to get these. Didn't even think about it. And then I got home and realised I don't even have a VHS player that works anymore. <laughs> So they just sit there in the shelf. You know, I can't watch them. And then I end up finding the concerts on YouTube anyway, so I just watch them on yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I set up a big uh, uh, home theatre system or something, it'd last five minutes. The kids would run past it and catch a cord on their foot and it'd be fucked. And <laughs> my eyesight's 
pretty ratchet anyway. So I, I actually had a look at a 3D TV in the shop. They had that thing where you put your face on it, you know, uh, <laughs> put your eyes up against this thing and, and see the 3D TV. It'd give me a headache straight away because like, my eyes don't focus the same, both of them, I suppose. Kids are watching going, oh, yeah, you can see it looks like it's um, you know, real or whatever, but they're not don't care, which is, I guess, why 3D TV didn't really last that long. Nah, too much, too much of a wank. I think. I think they just went a little well, bit too far. Around a pair of glasses on. Well, I assume they um, don't have cords hanging out of them, but that's how I pictured them. You know what I mean? I, I can't get any more than six feet from the TV because the cords not long enough <laughs> from the glasses. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it takes a bit of convincing for me to, to to move up to the next format or the the next uh, the next thing yeah. that's in or whatever. I'm definitely not uh, not scrambling to to move up in the tech world if, if something works and it gets the job done and I enjoy it then I'll usually just stick with that for as long as I possibly can before I, I miss VHS's you know. for being able to record things because I got a PVR where they call it I've mm. used it twice because I never trust it yeah. and so I'll end up going back to see if it's good and while I'm here I'm, I might as well watch the fucking show <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> I'll catch it another time, or I can get it on DVD, or we can probably see it on YouTube. Yeah, that's it. You find a way. You find a way. You yeah. end up. You end up just. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, not not all that's cracked up to be. But look, everyone's different, I guess. And there's obviously a market for it. People are people are oh, snapping the stuff up. I'd love to be able to be able to experience that what they do, and and I just I guess I don't have the time either. But you know, I, oh, fuck, the last time I went to the cinema would have been with the kids for a movie. But before that. I was kind of infamous for having seen Broken Arrow, mm. uh, which is uh, a movie a long time ago, which I won a free ticket to. <laughs> yeah. And before that, The Four Monty. <laughs> and that was my, uh, which I think I went to with uh, my now wife as a date. And I think that was kind of my uh, movie experience. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't like to sit down in the middle of the day doing nothing sort of thing. Yeah. Because I guess I've got, I got so much to do, but it's just a bit sort of, oh, fuck, I wonder what else I could be doing, you know what I mean? I'm sitting here for two hours. I'd love to be able to experience cinema like some people do. It, it looks cool, but it, it's not for me. Oh, definitely. I Even even at home, like, I'll I'll get a bunch of DVDs or Jess, my fiancé, will, and sitting on the couch, and I've got a laptop on my lap just typing away while I'm watching it because I can't, I can't just stop. Yeah. And just watch something, and it might be interesting, it might be entertaining, but I just I can't justify just sitting there and just watching yeah. the TV. I've I've got to I've got to somehow do something else. And and as soon as you start trying to do two things at once, it just goes downhill very quickly. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. A, some things I try and watch most things while I'm working, and I tried to do that with Game of Thrones, but. <laughs> Surprised that you've even uh, joined the Netflix bandwagon because I haven't even got well, that far yet. Well, it was free for thirty days. Yeah, ah. it was, it was, and, and it was something I wanted to watch on it. Um, Orange is a new black. Oh, yeah. I've been yep. talking about this. So I'll get this free thirty days. That that part's not difficult. It's getting around to unsigning. So. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm a Netflix subscriber. That was like me with Foxtel years ago. I got a call out of the blue and they were 
offering like oh um, 40 bucks a month or whatever and we'll we'll give you uh, the basic package plus an extra couple of packages on top of that and yep. uh, and that's it and you got it for 12 months I thought oh fantastic and and then I got about I don't know six months in I thought oh this is this is shit it's just taking me twice as long to realize there's nothing on TV and then I had to write out the contract and then it got to the end of the 12 months and it just became so difficult to try and unsign like get off the contract because yep. A, you get lazy and you just get distracted and, and having to sit on the phone and go through that conversation, you just keep putting it off. And then eventually yep. when you get on there, Foxtel were always notorious for this because they would just throw everything at you to try and keep you there. And they'd be like, oh, well, how about we give you the next two months free? No, no, that's okay. Yep. Oh, well, look, how about we give you an extra four packages on top of it? You don't have to pay anything more. And, you know, I know some people that just, that was enough for them. They they, they never look back. They just, they you know, ten years later, they're still still with Foxtel. You know, yeah. regardless with all the the Netflix and everything else, they're just completely loyal and addicted to to Foxtel. But I, oh, I yeah. well, we've had it for a long time. Your kids use it, but now they're on YouTube. You know, they don't really watch it because of Disney Channel and and all that sort of shits on there. And they would, well, my my eldest would watch it quite a bit, but my youngest. Uh, he used to, but now it's all YouTube, and he and he subscribes to these channels. They're like um, morning shows. They're full blown morning shows. You know that they're just on YouTube. It's fascinating. Two and a half million subscribers or something to these people. Mind boggling. It's definitely definitely the new platform. I think uh, you know, and anyone can launch their own series and show online and and through these sort of community social networks and and yeah. do it for do it for very little instead of trying to get uh, some sort of contract to be on a on a network or something like that. You can just do it yourself so it's uh it's got its positives but it also attracts a lot of shit as well and you've got to sift through a lot oh, of shit of to try and find the, the the gold so yeah a lot of people are fairly brutal on their commentary on things these days <laughs> too you know I, I can't believe the way that like an, an album will get released by a band and you know some guy has to tell you how shit you are like it's like <laughs> to me walking up to a guy in his face and yelling you are shit you know your band sucks whatever we used to of course we'd say that when fucking St. Anger comes out of course we'll hang shit on Metallica <laughs> but yeah. I never wrote to Lars Ulrich and said you are shit which is <laughs> what they're doing when they're writing on their Instagram post or their Twitter or Facebook or whatever oh, mind boggling uh, it's, the, it's the keyboard warrior it's uh, as soon as you're not in front of somebody anymore you don't have to have that, that instant reaction from from somebody else you can t tap away on your keyboard and send it off and then yeah, and you can see a reaction they, and that's they, it how are they socially those people oh like well that, how, that's it they, you know, that's in person a lot of social skills down the drain they can't talk to people in person they've got they've they've lost all those skills or for a lot of young young kids that are growing up young, don't even have it don't even have never developed they, the skills they couldn't do I, I couldn't I just can't fathom it I'd start to being on Friday night about it and I said how, how do you switch off from this this is because some of the stuff was brutal and that's not we, we expect it because these kids want an audience or whoever does it they want an audience they mm. think they're getting themselves an audience because other people must go yeah I had it too this guy's so cool because he's told them that their face are shit <laughs> and they they had released these three or four songs uh, initially before the album came out knowing the reaction that those specific songs would get because they were their most different from their normal stuff and they expected to get it all but hey as I say any publisher is good publisher I guess but I couldn't I couldn't sit there and read it I don't think it's so personal some of it it's freaking ridiculous it's freaking music for Christ's sake oh yeah yeah it's um, it, in some cases it just goes next level shit and it's uh, yeah. and yeah look I know a lot of people who 
scour the internet looking for every single comment they possibly can and then going out of their way to start internet wars with people to to make sure that they yeah. try and prove a point and there's always that um there's a there's a meme that floats around on the internet of uh, of this uh, down syndrome kid running through uh, a tape like uh, and it says uh, arguing on the internet is uh, is like running in the special olympics even if you win you're, <laughs> you're still a retard yeah. and and yeah. and while that's probably not the most politically correct uh, thing out there yeah. uh, it, it's true in a way because it's oh, well from the internet argument anyway i mean even if you win the argument you're still in you still haven't won. You still yeah. you still look bad, and the best best in a lot of those cases, the best scenario is just to to not even read them in the first place and just ignore them. It's just not worth it. Yeah, why is it store? Very rarely you get someone say something that's just wrong, and you think, do I do I bother responding to this fucking idiot? That no, what you've said is is absolute garbage. But oh, fuck it, I start typing it out, and I go, oh, what's the point? <laughs> you know, he's going to tell me that this pickup is this pickup, and that's the end of the story. But because I'm not supposed to have an opinion, because I'm the guy who runs the store, and I'm I'm living in fucking Tahiti on weekends, and <laughs> I don't, I've never seen uh, thousands of pickups and thousands of guitars over my time, whatever. The one guitar this guy's got. He knows everything because of that one guitar. Yeah. I, I can't argue with them. Yeah, an expert. They've read something else on the internet from someone else who agrees with them, therefore it's factual. Yeah, yeah. Earlier days of the, when forums were bigger, I mean, there were some stupid arguments, but you could have some debate. Uh, I don't see any debate going back and forth with some Twitter posts or, you know, some Instagram posts because they, they're so abridged. Mm. It's not a matter of being, um, what's the word? It's, it's not a matter of, of being concise. It's more, they're just short fucking sentences with abbreviations that barely make any sense. On a forum that there would be expanded upon and there could be some debate. And oftentimes we've come to a consensus or uh, concede points back and forth, but it's just not enough tension to do that. Nah, not at all. And it's, uh, I mean, we've seen it before. You, you you post something up and then you just get this, this random person that's come out of nowhere and you... And they just write fag or, or shit or something like that, and you, and you laugh and you go, "Who's this guy?" And so you go and click on their on their little link to their profile, and you have a look and you're trying to see who, like, you know, if it's on Facebook, you're looking for like mutual friends, trying to work it out, and you just can't see any link to anybody because usually for us, anyone who usually hangs shit on us, it, there's usually some vague link there somewhere where we can usually work it out and we can understand why that person's getting butt hurt over something because maybe they played a show with us age ago and and we didn't go out of our way to go up and say hi to them or maybe somebody yeah. uh, we, we sp- started speaking to one of their girlfriends 10 years ago and they got shitty over that and they've held it against us you know for, yeah. forever since then but every once in a while you just get this completely random person out of nowhere and you just don't know who the hell this person is and you just laugh because it's just so ridiculous and over the top and you just wonder what what's going through this person's head like what you know is it are they are they writing because they genuinely hate the music and, and sometimes they'll get she because you have validated their opinion that's it yeah. you know? <laughs> well your opinion doesn't mean anything you're a fucking idiot but you know <laughs> 
you want me to reply to your post, or you want me to tell you, that, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that the music is not for you. Um, perhaps we should change it to something more to your liking. Next time, what would you suggest we do? You know, if you haven't written that back, then you don't care about your fans or bizarre. Oh, yeah. There's some, uh, that's the problem with the internet is that uh, you, you don't need a license to get on there and every yeah. every moron uh, has got access to a, a smartphone now or, you know, a laptop or whatever. So it's easier than ever to, to be connected and, and interact with people. And, and I mean, Facebook's the, the prime example of this. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, you know, you... And like most people, you you learn, you're taught to respect your elders. And there's always this um, this mentality that if you're older, even if it's a year older than than you are, or 10, 15, 20 years, that there's automatically this wisdom attached to age. And so, as soon as someone's a little bit older than you, then you associate that that person knows more than you. They're wiser. Yep. They're more mature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yep. and as I grew up, I sort of realised that that wasn't the case, but. It really got highlighted when Facebook took off because then yeah. you suddenly had these people that were attempting to write so people could who couldn't spell properly or string a sentence together so that was one thing which sort of just blew my mind and then when all the opinions started coming out and the day-to-day dribble of this is what I do on a day-to-day basis and because it's so instant people don't think about what they're writing they just write yeah. without thinking and so every single thought that's going through their head of oh i just went and took a shit or you know yeah, i just had this food or just coming out on the keyboard yeah that's it or fuck those fuck those muslims or whatever it is and you sort of just yeah. go oh my god like yeah. well, this person i i've got along with i've had you know beers at a show and I've known for years and this comes out of their mouth and and when you're in a social setting and you're face to face with someone the filter's there and you think before you speak because whatever you say you're going to get an instant reaction from the person standing across from you but when you're on your phone that sense of reality is out the window so you just you just type it and press send and then it's gone and so so people don't think anymore oh yeah and so I've just over the last several years I've just <laughs> I've disconnected from a lot of people that, that normally years ago I would have you know it's uh, the people that I need to look up to and respect and I just sort of go you know what no, no way <laughs> it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a scary scary thing so it's oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 you see things that people think fuck I never knew you were into that or you like you you, were, you had that opinion that's fucking wow man you know Ooh. and I hadn't known a guy for a long time I think Jesus man I I use the unfollow button quite a bit on Facebook because you get a hint of something from somebody and especially for me, if it's somebody that I associate with in real life, then I'll if I get even a sniff of something, I'll just unfollow them because, you know, if I've got to maintain some sort of relationship with somebody, I'd rather it be face-to-face. And if something does pop up then, then you deal with it in person. But I, I, I don't want that sort of reputation to be tarnished because of some stupid post on Facebook. So those people that yeah. I've, I've got some sort of connection with, I'll just unfollow if they start talking shit because it's just it's just not worth it. It just does your head in. I'll have I'll have no yeah. friends left by the... <laughs> if I keep doing it. <laughs> I mean, you can come back as a troll. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. Yeah, definitely. I'd do a bit of that anyway. <laughs> uh, I guess for all the bad things, there's plenty of good come from the internet, especially for younger bands. I, I'm, it's remarkable to me how they've adopted it for their benefit, mm. created their own networking uh, for, like, they've almost created their own uh, 
tour paths. Mm. You know, there's places that never got played before. They've hooked up with someone here, or we've got a band, or we've got a hall here, and they created a, a new network of, of opportunities to play, mm. which started, I guess, back at MySpace. You know, they're, they're very good at marketing themselves online. They they know what who to reach and how to reach them, and you know, they, they can do a lot of it DIY, which was much more difficult to do beforehand. And they still work just as hard, or if not harder, but just a different way of doing and it. I assume it's uh, it's very different to the days of um, Azriel's monkey. Yeah, that was one of them. I wanted to call it four-ass monkey. <laughs> I don't know why, but I had a picture of a monkey with four ass in my mind. I don't know how that come about, I don't know either. But, um, so we compromised into Azriel from the Smurfs or something. All oh, right. <laughs> that was the last grand. That was with a girl singer who... Ended up in the first series of pop stars. Oh, actually. right. Uh, went to Sydney and, and did the whole, um, you know, the Love Final 24 or whatever it was, and she could dance, and she sort of came back and suggested it was a bit sleazy over there, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, a couple of dates before that. Mr. Mina was the first one, though. Yeah. However, it was Mr. as in M-R, M-E-A-N-A. <laughs> How good's that? <laughs> hey? Very witty. Fucking nice. And uh, it was a it was a bit of a cop theme that the singer used to wear a pair of jolpers like the mounted sort of policeman. Yep. And so tight apparently that you could tell he was a Catholic. <laughs> um, he is now. Well, he went on to. Uh, he was a. I found out sort of after he'd done it. He was the uh, some sort of marketing manager for Samsung in the UK. He did the whole David Beckham thing in the London Olympics and all that because they sponsored the London London Olympics. He was the. He's the guy, like the marketing guy, the head of marketing for Samsung in the UK. Well, you got to start somewhere, and uh, definitely, uh, definitely a pivotal point to moulding his career. Uh, There's a job every time. It had to be. <laughs> I mean, it's max of confidence. So obviously, he's taken it all their way up to there. Well, character building Works for someone else now, but yeah, we we that was our you know, growing up together playing. So we were just scraping together what what gear you could and did a cast single double A side. It was called Stand Tall, I believe. Oh, I'm, I, in a way, sometimes I, I... See, I'm not much of an archivist. I'm not an archivist at all. And I don't keep anything. Sometimes I wish I had done. But I know if I need to get it off, someone, one of my old mates will have it somewhere. But I never really kept anything, press clippings or CDs or tapes or any of that sort of stuff. Mm. But we did, yeah, we did this, this single thing. And that drummer... I played in all those bands with Drew there, and he's still my best mate. Yeah. Um, I, some of the bands that are working really hard now, they're all friends, or as close as they can be, for spending an ungodly amount of hours on the road together. And I kind of say when we're talking about it, they say, oh, you know, it's tough and this and that. But the, the, they, when they're my age and they look back on it, one of the best things they're going to remember about it is they did it with their mates. Mm. So... Being in a band and getting into a band and then thinking, I'm going to be famous, this and that, which we all did when we were, you know, we were trying to tease our hair like Britney Fox. <laughs> you, you you don't think about... So if you're joining a band now and you're saying, oh, this guy's a cockhead, but I'm going to stay with him because this, this and this, it's just not worth it. You're going to have your best memories of doing it with your friends. At whatever level you become, whether you're just playing in, in, your, in your shed and you play a couple of shows out, you'll have a great time with your mates. And those guys are still mates, a couple of those bands, or three or four of them. One or two lost here and there. But by and large, they're, I think it's 50% of their success is the fact that probably more. You try and find four or five people that you're going to get along with 
in those quarters with those pressures on you because they're not earning fuck all money, these guys. And, and that's part of the, the secret to their success. And, and they all understand who's doing what in the band. So they're all they're business-like in that sense that, that that's his role, that's his role, that's his role, that's his role. If one of them's role is to book the shows and you get to a place and it's a shitty show, don't hook into him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that, that sort of exists. Oh, you booked your show, it's fucking shit. Well, how come you weren't booking your shows? We agreed that this is how it's going to work. I didn't intentionally set it up so we're playing in some two-foot-by-two-foot two shed in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, shit happens. Uh, they all educate themselves very well, which is a good thing about the internet. We couldn't get educated about what manager was going to screw us. But if a band is not willing to educate themselves now, with all the resources they've got, in all facets of uh, not getting screwed for one, but how to book shows, how to tour, how to treat people, you know, then they don't deserve to get anywhere. All of those guys that are doing well have done a lot of work on that sort of stuff and made great relationships and whatever else, and they don't take anything for granted. There's one or two I can think of, because we deal with a lot of them through either them or through their management, but most of them because of they started buying from us when they were in school. Mm. The nature of the internet. Yeah. One or two of them I can think of that were had, didn't care about the business side of things or, or, or didn't want to care, and they would have management which no longer have that management because the management doesn't want to work with someone who doesn't want to know what they're doing. Yeah. Because every time they make a decision or they do something, they're going to turn around and go, we're doing this. If you ever educate yourself about what your management's doing, then everyone gets along better and one of them I'm thinking of specifically no longer has the management they had and is going backwards fast mm. and they didn't care about it and they also didn't treat really say we're part of their chain and then they need their gear but they don't treat like we we don't make any money off any of these guys so we're effectively fronting them for some gear and, and they pay us off but not paying off someone like us you know that shows your attitude to the people that are trying to help you out. That's and, and that's what that band had done, or one of the members of the band, two of them. There's another guy that his attitude towards endorsement really stank. Mm. It was like, you know, he's doing them a favour sort of thing. It's it's very rare to get an endorsement and extraordinarily rare to get free stuff. But acting like, you know, you you are the reason that this fucking company exists, it's not the way to go about it. <laughs> I know, I know, uh, I know quite a few people that uh, that fit that last category for sure. It's uh, it's frustrating. I mean, especially from from our point of view, I guess you know we, I mean we, it's all trial and error. And especially when you do you do DIY, you have to sort of learn as you go. And if you do make a mistake, you you move quickly to to rectify that and move on. But yeah. um, you know, I mean we. Any any sort of win along the way, if you manage to secure an endorsement or or some sort of accolade or support from from somebody in the industry, then you do everything you can to make sure that that person, whoever whoever's made that decision for you, knows that they're not regretting it and that they're getting absolute the, mo- the absolute most from you that they possibly can, and, yeah. and showing that gratitude for 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 the opportunity. And and I I see a lot of bands out there that uh, I mean either have been given the opportunity and don't and and do take it for granted and real and then whinge later on when they get dropped from from whatever agreement yeah. that might be or you've got the ones who have never been given the opportunity and they whinge constantly and don't do anything about it and, and there's that sense yeah. of entitlement and you just laugh yeah. and you go you, you're whinging because you're not getting anything, but by whinging, you're, not, you, you're definitely you're guaranteeing you'll never get anything. You're not doing it anything to help yourself. It was a spate of it, probably 
five or six years ago it became I don't know what happened, but there was, I guess it was an emergency in New scene and, and there was a lot of them that felt entitled to it. Now, just about all of them are, are good with it. Whether they um, are wised up to it or it's just the, the people that the, the brands have chosen, I guess maybe it's probably the latter that they've weeded out all of those people that take it for granted. Mm. But some of the guys work incredibly hard for the brand. Um, Without a huge amount of return, but because they're they're happy to, to have the accolade of, of having the acknowledgement from the brand, you know that aspect to it. Someone somewhere along the line is paying for it. Yeah, some of these people don't understand that. So, if it's a local level of endorsement, it could be the distributors paying for it. There's no money from the manufacturer. Mm. It could be a store level endorsement uh, where the store is actually paying for it. Somebody has to pay for it. Very, very rarely does the manufacturer pay for it. Yes. So in the example of your guitars and Tim and Mark's, you got uh, a deal that is extraordinarily rare, but that's because of your relationship that you had developed with Makoto, uh, the, the representation that you give the brand and so on and so forth. It's extraordinarily rare to get guitars like that. Mm. Uh, most of the guys are happy to, to, for the discount that they get. And, and, and work really hard for it. Because every little bit counts in terms of dollars for them. Absolutely. And they know there might be some other opportunities down the track, but, but to sort of demand this and that when you first signed up, and, you know, so, some of the smaller companies will give it to them, mm. but that's what they need to do. Obviously, they're a smaller company, so they're trying to get the exposure. You can't go to a, to a massive manufacturer and say, I'm such and such, I've got, you know, five and a half thousand likes on Facebook, <laughs> you should be giving me heaps of shit, you know? Yeah. It's remarkable some of the people that ask. And, and you know, Facebook's not a obviously a, a, a only um, proof, of, proof of what your popularity is, but two and a half, three thousand, it's probably not that impressive to, you know what I mean? That's it. To a manufacturer or anyone looking to endorse you. I don't know where the rest of your marketing's going. By accident, you should have more than two and a half thousand Facebook followers. Without even trying. Without any exposure, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, and then when multi-thousand-dollar things for, for cheap or nothing, things that you can't even get a hold of, you know, that, that are so hot at the time that you can't even get enough stock of to supply the people wanting to buy them, mm. and they think they're entitled to them. You've got to think, what are you going to do for the brand? How is the brand better off by having you get a discount on it, or, or you know, what exposure will the brand get? If your answer is, oh, shit, I don't know. I'm going to post it on my Facebook page. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fairly simple to work it out. It's um, it's a it's a concept that gets forgotten very often by a lot of people, and a lot of people just in the local metal scene, and and people wonder why the metal scene, the, the local Australian scene, suffers so much, is because everybody's out to get something from somebody else but no one actually stops and goes well hang on if I need that from that person what can I give them back to help them in order yeah. to get what I need so it's everyone's yeah. always about taking and not looking to try and help others and, and some people laugh at at me because I'll go out of my way to sort of you know try and push other bands or even just really simple shit like just getting people to send me stuff and I'll just include it in our online orders when I send stuff out to people and I'll just put chuck free CDs in there or flyers or stickers or whatever it is and I've yep. had a few people laugh at me go why waste your time doing that for bands that aren't going to do anything and I just think well okay to start off with the people who order from us get all this extra shit, so yep. they're going to be more inclined to buy again from us, especially people overseas when they're paying through the neck for postage. So I'm trying to give them more bang for their buck. So you're, you're helping with you know customer retention if you're thinking yep. from a business point of view. Secondly, 
for those bands that are actually sending stuff through, you're getting them a bit of extra exposure and you're doing a bit of cross-promotion. They're getting their stuff out to people that probably they might not, not normally be able to reach. And it's not just people in, you know, locally down the road or whatever. It's people on the other side of the country or the other side of the world. And... Yep. And it's um you know it's something it's something for the fans it's something that they they get excited about yeah that's it and it and really for me the band, half these bands out there that send me stuff it's stuff that's been sitting under their bed for the last five years it's collecting dust and they can't do anything with them and yeah. and I send these CD, CDs out to people and these people are contacting these bands and saying this is fantastic what are you guys doing now and they're sort of like oh I guess we better do something now and yeah. it's and it's great I think it's just it, it gives people an excuse to get their product out there and I just struggle a bit with some of the bands that are that are active at the moment because they don't understand the concept a lot of these old school concepts of just like flyers they go what's the point of doing a flyer i said well it doesn't cost you much just go down to office works and office works and print off a bunch of black and white flyers you can still make a so mix they've probably never uh walked you know gone around in, in one of the cars with a bucket of flour and water and done it old school yeah that's What's it wrong with that that's it and we still i mean i i preach about flyers a lot i'll go and get a bunch printed up and i don't do it as much as i used to but i still every once in a while if we've got something coming up that i'll go to an international show after after it all finishes and stand yeah. out front and hand out flyers and people go why do you waste your time if you're handing out a thousand flyers maybe 50 people will keep them i said well it's 50 more people that that uh, that we didn't have beforehand and half the time it's uh, it's a it's purely a social networking tool anyway you're out there and people see you out there and you start having conversations with people you interact with people and it just opens yeah. more doors up it's just i, I so think this may come sense. from the same individuals who might have a facebook page or back in the myspace days or they've got a twitter account or an instagram account are they not aware that they're trying to pluck a handful of people out of the billions that are on those networks yeah. it's no different to you stand at the front handing out flies or us we have a website you might get a million hits converting that into sales it's it's not a million sales it's a small percentage of it but that's the whole point that's it you know, and you've got to be there to get that whatever you get out of it that's it and, and you've got to cover as many bases as you can you can't just focus on one thing i see people that you know, announce a tour or whatever and they just stick to Facebook and that's it. And if you're not on Facebook or it doesn't show up in your news feed, then tough, you don't know about it. And they get oh, shitty yeah. when no Facebook. one rocks up to their shows. Yeah, Facebook's brutal for, oh, it's, it's, for that. Oh, it's there worse was a, than there was a, sh a show being put on by a footy club out, out of town here, about half an hour north of here, earlier this year. And it was a big sort of line-up of bands. It was sort of, you know, 90s bands. And I thought, geez, all, all I saw was a Facebook post about it. And this thing was an expensive production. So they were going to bust people out there and all the rest of it was going to make them a, a squillion dollars, you know. All I saw was a Facebook post about it. No no advertising even in the local press. And I thought, oh, shit, this is going to go tits up badly and, and it's going to burn someone. Yeah. Turns out they had 30 pre-sales for this thing. <laughs> this was a production that, that was going to cost them 75 grand. I'm talking to big bands, these were. Yeah. And they were getting these bands to reform for this thing. One-off shows a one-off show were 30 pre-sales so they they wrote it off and it cost them it cost them about half that i reckon they paid out about 40 to forty-five thousand dollars. it oh. decimated that club but no concept of the promotion as a promoter yeah you know let alone what we're talking about is is a lower scale this huge stakes mind-boggling that someone can think that 
Well, I put it on fucking Facebook. Where is everybody? Yeah. How do you get 30 pre-sales? <laughs> you know, that's... Oh, for the size of what these bands are, it's going to be name them, I'll go too much detail, but it, it, it's... Even if you put it out in the paper, you're going to get more than that. You might have got a couple hundred pre-sales, but just one post on Facebook, um, expecting that to get shared. Just can you share this, please? That's, no, that's not how you promote the thing. If you want to make money out of it, then you're going to have to spend some money in that side of it, not just booking the bands and everything else that you've you've put on. Well, that's it. With a million other other bands and people that are all trying to promote their their things online, you know, it's like I mean, I'm sure you you get the same. You you log into Facebook and you see a million of event invites and half yes. the time they're for things that aren't even in your local area. They're on the other side of the world or in another state. And so, yeah. you know, if if I'm sending out an invite to to a show or whatever, you've you've got to try and work out a way that your your event sticks out amongst the other fifty million that are getting sent to people. And so you know you do the Facebook yeah. thing and and you promote through there, but then you go out and try and find other ways. And yeah, you do street press or you you go out there and do you know the old poll posters or do the flyers or whatever it is. And you just try a whole bunch of different avenues. And you, it's just a way to blanket approach it. And a lot of a lot of young bands. Now it's either it's dated and they think it doesn't work and we're in the digital age, so they're stubborn in that sense, or yeah. more true to the fact they're just they're just fucking lazy. That's 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 yeah. probably the biggest the biggest one. They're more concerned about what's going on. Right. Genres, in certain genres, as you were talking about, in, in specific genres in specific cities, suffer issues, and it seems to be cyclical. Uh, over time, they realize shit. We need to communicate. We need to get along, and it becomes a a, a community, and then it goes back to shit again. Some of these genres, like the hardcore guys, tend to really help each other out, yeah. um, right back to when they were releasing double A's together, and, and they're still thankful for those relationships that might have occurred 12, 13, 14 years ago. Mm. But I've always admired the way that they've gone about a lot of their business, in that they have built these networks. It's not my uh, scene of music, uh, necessarily. It's, it's not what I was into, but they work really hard. They build relationships. They're respectful. Uh, they network very, very well. They make wise decisions and they educate themselves. If a band doesn't do that, really today you've got no hope because you're not just going to get plucked out of obscurity by a record company. It just—it's—it's it's not. Well, fucking hell! How many decades do you have to go back to actually for that to be something that existed? You know what I mean? That's it. That's it. You've got, as you said earlier on, it's uh, there's there's too many resources at your fingertips. You, you can't afford to be ignorant to to all these things. And if and look, if you end up uh, suffering due to something like that, where you could have easily avoided it, then you know, I guess it's uh, it's a, it's probably you yeah. know something that's that's uh, not I shouldn't say deserved, but uh, you know, it's it's to be expected if you if you don't spend the time and and the research to to go out there and find out uh, the ins and outs. Yeah, I still have people come to the shop you now. They're, they're young bands and they're coming to their parents and say, oh, you know, such and such, this, this label that I've never heard of saw us at such and such a show and they want to sign us. What do you mean sign you? Like sign you to a record contract. You, with due respect, you're 14 or 15, you're just learning. Yeah. You're nothing special. What does this contract exactly entail? And the parents go, oh, no, no, they want to sign them. I said, well, who's, who's looked at this contract? If what it turns out to be is it, it's, it's uh, oh, you know, I've got a studio, so what I'll do is I'll record you and I'll only charge you X amount of dollars, and so that'll be your EP, and then I'll get into record stores, and they list uh, uh, two record stores. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what they've actually gone is they've gone to a show, an underage show, there's six bands there, gone to every band there and thought, I'll get a 1000 bucks out of these guys, do a short little two-day EP, running my 
home studio, and that's the end of it. Some of them actually signing them in perpetuity, but that's just lunacy. Yeah. But the parents are, are, are all excited, which sometimes I, I sometimes I feel bad telling them. Mm. You know, I'm saying, look, I understand how excited you are, and I hand them Shane Simpson's music business book. <laughs> I say, go home and read that. If you're not prepared to read that, then, you know, because then they come in all excited about, you know, the label and all this other shit. It's just bizarre that a 40, 45-year-old mother or father of this person can be buying this bullshit. Take that book home and read it. Very few of them read it. I guess I guess we're still in that transition period where you've got um, the generation before that's still stuck in the in the, the glitz and glamour of, of the whole rock star lifestyle and, yeah. and, and how how everything used to be with, you know, record deals and touring the world yeah. and all these sort of things and, and not being, you know, and it's also not probably not having as much knowledge of how technology works in general now and, and having enough knowledge. And so that, and, you know, if you're, if you're 13, 14 years old, you probably aren't as clued up either because you're still, you're still learning. So you're going off what your parents no, are saying as well. absolutely. You're along with your parents. Your parents are getting as pumped up about as you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I do, I give them that book and, 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 most of them don't read it, and as soon as they give it back to me and I ask them if they've read it and they haven't read it, you know, oh, thanks, you but no, it's all right, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out later on. The first thing they need to be doing is reading a book like that, mm. Shane Simpson book. Yeah. It, it might have some things in there that they think are irrelevant to them, but they're going to learn a whole lot, It's and it's Australian's perspective. Uh, there was a, a, a girl that uh, these people wanted to sign out, it was from one of these sort of Search and Stars type of deals, and I'd given the book to my mother notes, and I gave the book to my mum, and, and Told her, tell them to read this thing because she's thinking that she's going to be big and everything else. This is the mother. Mm. If you've got any responsibility to what's going to happen to your uh, child's uh, future in terms of this business, you need to read that book. It's just a book. Just read the book. Mm. They don't do it. You know? it. It tells you everything. If you are going to get screwed, you are going to get screwed because you haven't read that book. That's it. You weren't going to get screwed if you read the book. Simple as that. And and the music industry is just one of the very few industries that doesn't have much or if any regulation whatsoever. So anyone can rock up and say they're a promoter. Anyone can say they run a, a record label. Anyone can say yeah. they're a, they're a, they're a hot shot within the industry and have some sort of reputable, uh, you know image or whatnot and you can spin any bullshit story and especially i mean i've seen it especially over the last several years a lot of real drop kicks that are absolutely loaded with money due to yeah. rich parents or whatever and they become promoters and they end up screwing a lot of bands over and they even screw international artists over and then you've got yeah. these local i mean there's i can't remember the name of of the festival but there's a there's a local band festival that uh is in all the capital cities each year and i think the format something along the lines of that the bands have to pay to play the show. Oh, yeah, that's uh, Scorcher That's the one, yeah. Because we keep, keep getting yeah. messages from them. I think they're just being cunts on, yeah. you know, for the sake of it because they know, but they always keep inviting us to play and, and giving us uh, their fees and we just tell them to fuck off each time. But, I mean, these poor bands, I mean, they, they get, and especially the scenario that you said before, especially if you've got a, a parents that are, getting excited and and aren't up to speed of what the industry is like now you go oh that's a really good deal because you get to pay the play in front of people so you get exposure that's an investment yeah. so yeah these people just get screwed over so we yeah well because they've got a captive audience and they're uh, capitalizing on their emotion because every kid shit as an adult you want to be told oh i'm a, I'm a record label and i'm going to sign you and you know then all the things imagination starts going and think oh wow this is the this is what i wanted no matter what level you are but oh, it's almost uh, abusive for people to prey on underage shows and you know 
sign them, which all it is 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 it is it signing them to come and record in your studio that you've set up. That's mm. all you want them for. You want their two day EP to be recorded at your studio. You get them all going, you get the whole family going, they ring all their mates, they post it on Facebook, blah, 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 we got signed without any realisation to what's actually going on. Mm. Uh, but if you read any book or any, any blog or something, straight away you're going to pick that and you should pick that and you should call this guy out for being a cockhead, you know? Yeah. Or, or you've got a mate who's a manager. So, uh, and same with this promoter. Some of them might be well-intentioned and your mate's your manager, but is he the best person for the job? He's passionate about it and he, he wants to be involved and so on and so forth, but you've got to make a critical decision in terms of your, who your manager's going to be if you're not going to do it yourself. You can't be, oh, yeah, it's going to hurt his feelings. You have to get a person who's going to further what you do, otherwise there's no point in having a manager. I've, I've seen that quite a bit and I, I, there's not a lot of bands that, that we associate with these days that have managers anymore um, either. You know, it's just hasn't be, it's not economical anymore or yep. they've just... They're just useless. They're just, you know, they've got their own agenda and they're trying to push their own name out there to try and get a reputation and they end up running yeah. the, the band that they're uh, representing through the mud and, and screw them over. So a lot of bands have just moved away from it and really take on a lot more DIY themselves, which, you know, it's um, it's good in some ways. It, it's a bit sad in others because, I mean, I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd love if we had a manager that I didn't have to worry about half the shit I'd do. But at the same yeah. time, I probably wouldn't have the level of probably dedication or satisfaction um, from seeing yeah, the results either because I'm, I'm putting the work in and, and you get the results so there's more satisfaction in it. Yeah, it's very rare to, to, for bigger bands to be self-managed. Some do it but some of them have been very, very well or ably assisted because of their management and those best management companies aren't looking for you. you you've got to get into them. All the ones that are good uh, are not hanging around an underage show uh, in the middle of nowhere looking to sign you up for a two-day EP recording thing. That is not, you know, what good managers are doing. And the, 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 there's some management companies now that are very impressive the way they go about this stuff. Very, very impressive. A lot of different stuff to what previously used to be done. Mm. A lot of good connections. A, a lot of respect for the bands. A lot of respect. And it becomes a two-way street. And, and they tend to work with the bands that, that know what they're, why they're making decisions they're doing or, you know, why they're having to do this and why they're having to do that. So they, they all get along and it goes very well. Yeah. But yeah, self-managing is, is a big job and some of them do it only because I think organically they have done that. They've they've always done that and they've got to a certain point, well, with this big now, is, is the manager going to do much more for us? We've got relationships in place with people in all these different territories and, you know, the way we've gone about it's always worked so far. We've learned as we've gone along and we're now at a certain level that we can manage our affairs anyway. Well, that's it. And... and I mean the other the other side of it is that you've got bands that you know are self managed and and they they reach a particular point where they plateau they just they 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 don't have the resources to be able to take it to that next level and that's in those yeah. situations that's when you know a reputable manager or ma- or management company can can assist and, and help a band to, to get over that hump and I, yeah, I say, I say those those uh, those resources are generally contacts. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing more, nothing less. And some of those bands that are self-managed struggle to find uh, slots in the oddest places. You'd think that they're a big band and they're playing these big shows, but in certain territories, they've got no relationship with anyone. So they, they haven't had any success in terms of visiting those areas. But in other areas, they're fucking humongous, just relationships. That's it. A lot of schmoozing. That's it. That's it. Ask kissing. Well, we won't. We won't. Uh, we won't go into that that particular uh, comment any further. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because how long have you been playing then with Warp Dungeon beforehand? When did you join? What year? Uh, the end of 05, so almost 10 years. Oh, shit. Because right, yeah. so I, I met... Uh, Tim through Dak, who was working at Dynamic at the time, and we were clearing out Jacksons. It was when Fender bought Jackson. Yeah. And he said, oh, you need this guitar. So I might be into a, one of the Jacksons we had. It was Stu when he was playing mm. with uh, Dungeon, I guess. Yeah. So that must have been 2002, maybe. Yeah. Yep. And then, because um, you, you were, uh, were you in Brisbane, didn't you, before that? Yeah. Yeah, I was up in Brisbane. So you, and you were pretty active on the forum. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Yeah, and yeah. I reckon that I remember. Uh, did you play? Did you you play bass before you played guitar, or did you? Oh well, yeah, played played guitar play play. first, and then and then switched over to bass, and yeah, and uh, and then so I, I think I remember the transition when you came in because you were like effectively a, a a big fan type thing. Was that how it went about? Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, yeah, I, I chatted with Tim quite a bit over the years uh, online, and then um, and then I came down to Sydney a few times just to see shows and and whatever, and I was just yep. the young the young drunk that would rock up and annoy everyone and then um, and then actually it was it was 2005 uh, when the guys went to Europe uh, and did the tour with Megadeth and I just happened to be planning to go to Europe that year and I managed oh, yeah. to obviously say the right things and uh, they let me tag along with them and I did the lights for all the shows and, and by the end of the tour the, the band was beginning to fall apart and and, uh, and it was more or less uh, you know, do you want to join Dungeon and I went oh yeah. does that mean I have to move and uh <laughs> And then by, you know, several months later, I'm, I'm, bags are packed and I'm coming down to Sydney. So I quit quit the job and gave it a shot and, and then sort of yeah. never looked back after that. And sort of everything sort of worked out reasonably well since then. So it's been been quite good. But, uh, yeah, I think um, I started, I mean, I've known Tim since 2000 or 2001. Yeah, so, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was more or less just sort of a fan and just one of those annoying dickhead young drunks at, at gigs having a great time and annoying everyone and then I sort of uh, sort of went from there just a lot of a lot of schmoozing and getting yeah. in people's ears and annoying them until until they probably just let me tag along just to shut me up I guess yeah well I think we've had yeah, we've been there's been an unbroken relationship ever since then I guess but it was Stu and then it was and then Mark yeah. There was no one in between, was it? It was Stu straight to Mark, wasn't it? Oh, uh, we had was another it, guy. Oh, no, was there one in between? Yeah, we had Mav there for a little bit. The, the guy that's who looked right. like yep. Slash, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yep. and then, uh, and he was in for, oh, well, actually, Mav was only in for about a year. Actually, probably yeah. a year. And then and then Mark Mark came in after that. So Mark's Mark's probably about eight years, eight years with the band yeah. now. So, yeah, time time flies. Yeah, definitely. One one thing that I've, I've I missed before I was going to ask you about, and I won't I won't take up too much more of your time, but the whole relationship with ESP, um, yeah. I was going to ask how did that all start, but the first question I've got is how the hell do you get dealer of the year ten years in a row? Is this uh, is this a bit of a mafia <laughs> trick that you got where you just sort of intimidate everyone else and just eliminate the competition? Well, when we first started doing so, it was actually two thousand and. Five, we started doing them and then so that wasn't a full calendar year because CMI had then got the distribution off of what was venue music back then who was sort of on the slide and so CMI picked up it as a, a an internet as an Australian distributor as opposed to a store that was just sort of selling them here and there and we became a dealer sort of straight away because we had a good relationship with them and we always worked really hard to sell the Japanese stuff so it's obviously dollars involved in the Japanese stuff yeah. more so than some of the uh, Indonesian or the Korean stuff or what have you. So early on, there weren't many dealers at all. And certainly, even for the first three, four years, I guess, 
uh, there weren't any dealers selling the higher-end stuff. Um, every year since then, probably we've had someone who's had a crack, you know, like a dealer who's really doing a shot to, to beat us. But it's it's sales and marketing. Mm. So it's your your how many sales you do, obviously, um, and that's always the, the top or whatever. But you also got to be able to prove that you're marketing the brand. It's it's a sales and a marketing award, effectively. Yeah. And we're always pushing the brand in terms of what else it does, not just what you, you see on the ESP USA site. That Kirk Hammett got a new black guitar. <laughs> it's promoting what ESP is, uh, and it's it's a forty year old company that still hand makes guitars in Japan that's the expensive stuff and people sort of think oh you know, how can a guitar be that expensive but the handmade stuff is literally handmade there's a band sort of cut it out it's no different to any other small luthier whereas one guy builds it from the start to the finish mm. so it's, it's it's the process is no different the materials are the best that you can get the luthiers are the best you can get they've got for their vintage type instruments that they build which for sale in Japan they've got 58, 59, 1960 Les Pauls there that they reference off of the real things. Yeah. Now, they're not just guessing it. Um, so, yeah, so it's sales and marketing. Uh, we, we sell the most, but we mainly sell the Japanese stuff, so the, the dollars are, are up there considerably more than uh, a number of LTVs or something. Mm. But we also always done our special runs. So for years, we had them they're called BMF models, which is the B Music Forum, where we sort of knock out some specs together and come up with an idea for a short run of a guitar. And I think it started with a, uh, I think it was an SV about 2004. And we used to build, say, six of them, sometimes 10, depending on what the requirements of Japan needed for the run. And we built six and we'd sort of sell them to the form guys and some other guys. And we used to do one or two a year, always trying to come up with something else. When it became uh, E2, the, the reason for that branding change was because ESP in Japan were quite to have the ESP name only attached to their highest end product. In Japan, they only sell original series in custom shop. They're mm. both handmade. Original series is just a, 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 a series of guitars, so it might be a forest or whatever, that is a production guitar, so you know what colour it's going to be, you know what shape it's going to be, but it's still handmade. They didn't have a standard series. A standard series is only for export, which mm. is the more I'll make six at a time, what they call team built. So more than one guy's building. They were for export, and some dealers were bringing them back into Japan and then selling them uh, uh, sort of as a grey import, I suppose you call it, confusing a Japanese consumer that this one was called an ESP and this one's called an ESP, but this one is you know, 250,000 yen, this one's 650,000 yen. What's the difference? Mm. So much so that ESP had to put out of like a press release type thing explaining the difference between standard series and what was normally available in the Japanese stores. So E2 came about because of that, the standard series became E2. A lot of flack from uh, punters about the name change and it's not ESP and all the rest of it. It's the same guitar, but, you know, that, that's going to happen. It's inevitable. But it was a Japanese decision. And fair enough, they got a lot of pride in their name mm-hmm. uh, and they want it only on their high-end stuff. And it stops the confusion for the Japanese domestic dealers, customers. So they also now are able to sell E2 in Japan uh, because they, it's not called ESP, so they can confidently sell it without having to explain the difference all the time. Yeah. Uh, so you have Edwards, then E2, and yeah. then ESP. So the special run thing then got more difficult because they required more units. They were they were wanting 12 units sort of minimums, which can be difficult if you, you, you're effectively speculating on a model. 
Mm. And it's it's good to do six and, you know, you find six people that are into those specs. So then we sort of thought, and also they got rid of, my, the standard series, they got rid of a lot of options that were only available to outside the USA and Japan. So yeah. we had a point of difference to America because, you know, people are looking to America to see what the price is there and, you know, because we're so busy ripping people off <laughs> that, you know, they're going to buy it over there. The Americans only had a very narrow range of ESP they always did have and we had a very broad range it was up to about 250 different uh, shapes and colour options so E2 stripped back all of that range there was only a very limited range left so just like with our short run BMF models we needed a point of difference um, and we started to think about artists that, that don't really get looked at by the Americans in terms of signature models so we can do our sort of special run but and, and like a, a, we can do the dozen units but we can also have the, the help of the fact that the, the Artist name is attached to it, and that um, uh, that might help some sales, but still, also you're rewarding that person for being so supportive of ESP as an Australian, because the Americans are not going to do it, uh, because they, they're not going. It's, it's a small market here, obviously. Mm. So the first ones was actually you guys, which was uh, we expected to perhaps have to buy more of them because it's it's expensive to do, because you know, I got to commit to the whole lot. Um, where, but Makoto was, you know, because of your relationship, build them in that much smaller run. If we want to do more, we'll have to buy twelve. But we were able to get that done. So that was the precursor to then going to the. John Daly model from North Lane, which is a fairly highly spec guitar, so it's not cheap, but it's it's uh, it's got a lot of expensive spec on it. But I've sold that to a rockabilly guy who who has banjo tuners on it. There's no idea who John Daly is; doesn't care. <laughs> it's a baritone seven string Telecaster. Yep. He usually uses a six string. He's now put pinstripes on it, like the rockabilly thing. Yeah. Um, and he's about to do a video of it. He doesn't care who John is, but it's a well spec guitar. Yeah. So you have different buyers for these things when it when it happens we need to commit to a lot of units to get it to happen and we kind of take a risk but we will commit to the units and then say to cmi look if other stores want them then they come along and they can buy them and take them from our allocation because we're happy to share it we don't yeah. want to have to buy them all but so that's how, how the 12 units get made cmi may make a few i'll take six and then there'll be a handful here and there then at the same time we're doing that parkway drive models also came about because we've known ben for some time who's their tech and i said well ask them if they would be into this and they're really excited about it and and they're not real complex guitars they've got all the things on them that they want from them so john's is really highly spec uh death and luke's are a much simpler horizon uh, string through and, and a mirage string through and pair of humbuckers neck through whereas john had the nitro finish and he had the bare knuckle pickups and the shayla haynes bridge and baritone and all the rest of it yeah same deal uh i commit to all of the units uh and if other stores want to buy them then they can buy them so we end up with about five of each or something like that and they sold really well and, and all over the place um and they were really excited about it and they're really good about it too because they're always using them they recorded with them you know people have this this thought that oh the, the artist doesn't use the same thing it's exactly the same because they came to my shop first mm. and then i just grabbed one and set it you know set it up and sent it to them yeah it's exactly the same guitar and it it, it ticks all the boxes for them they're really excited because they've got to get this thing uh, their fans get to buy it's, it's expensive for uh, what most of them might have thought what the demographic is but they're, they're all gone mm. then you know we look to what, what we'll do again with it but don't you have to do those sorts of things in Australia to to uh, differentiate differentiate yourself from the American market and all the other markets. You know, you can't just expect that ESP USA's website is going to sell all your guitars for you. You've got to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a lot of uh, outside the box 
thinking. Yeah, and so we'll mock them all up. And, and it's quite interesting to see the other stores using my artwork that I created, but I don't care. You know, I think it's good for those artists to be able to get that recognition. Those stores don't realise that that's my picture they use. Yeah. You know, that's, that's purely a mock-up. It's not the real guitar, and you know, they start promoting them, and um, my logo disappears off of lots of things. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's... Yeah, those artists deserve those things. Mm. And and America is not going to be looking down to Australia to find their artists because it's you, you've got to take it to them. They're yeah. too busy in their own backyard with all their artists. Same when Brett Gar said, "Got his," you know, and, and and his model was a similar sort of thing. It was a, sh- a short run sort of a thing. They had to buy X amount of units at a time, and, and they did that for Brett, and that sold very well because it's a versatile guitar. Mm. So you know, I don't know what we'll do next. Who's we'll do next? But we'll do something. Yeah, I reckon it's great. It's fantastic. And especially for um, for the E2 brand, for us, I think it was just, I mean, it definitely helped having Makoto in our court, but yeah. uh, but I think it was almost like right place, right time as well with, you know, trying to introduce that brand and, and yeah, get the name out there as the well. Brand. Yeah. Yeah. That no, was fantastic. Yeah. It was uh, definitely definitely a bucket list uh, moment for for all of us. Um, just something that we you know we would always sort of fantasize about to have our own sort of signature acts and uh, yeah. and uh, it, it happened and uh, and I remember you know being down at Adelaide and playing uh, playing the show and you brought the brought the guitars along and uh, got to open sure. them up and have a look and it was a it was a pretty cool moment. We went out and got shit faced afterwards. Yeah, indeed. What a we, yeah, beer towers. <laughs> <laughs> And um, with the, there's one other thing. Uh, apparently, Mark's uh, been hassling you about this rare ESP that you got that you're refusing to sell him. Oh, the Zorlak. It's, um, it's uh, the early hammock that had the Jackson sort of headstock. They call it the Zorlak because he had um, <coughs> one of the, when he, he, on his one, I think it's, uh, it'd have to be between Lightning and um, Justice. Was that eighty? Would that be the right timeline chronologically? About eighty-seven. Oh yeah, yeah, eighty-seven would be just before Justice. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's got a it's got one with a pus head sticker on it that they that they called Zorlac, uh, and that's what that guitar is it's sort of colloquially known as Zorlac. But it's it's the first hammer sort of model. It, it was called an MM two ninety back that, then. Is it got sort of like a Les Paul shape to it? No, no, no. No. Okay, it's three, but it's it's like it, like his current one now, but it's got the pointy Jackson headstock. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. And yeah, the yeah. skulls go uh, vertically down the neck instead of horizontally. So when you're if you're playing it standing up, the skulls are actually laid on their sides instead of how they do now. Yeah, yeah. So they used to call them uh, when they had a signature guitar uh, in Japan. MM was Metallica Mirage, uh. and 290 was 290,000 yen. Just like the MX, the guitar that's no longer mentioned or made, uh, the Hetfield Explorer, mm. the classic Gibson shape, was the MX Metallica Explorer. Used to be 250,000 yen. Now they're 650,000 yen mm. if you can get them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're, astronaut. they're, they're all custom shop stuff. Yeah. Uh, MS 495 was a Metallica Slayer. Sorry, Mirage Slayer, like a Jeff Hanneman model, mm. 495 JH, 495,000 yen. The early Kerry King Crackle V was, was the BC, uh, not the, before the BC Rich days. Uh, that was called a, a KKV 380 or something like that. Um, uh, that, that were, it was an extraordinarily expensive instrument back then, which would have been, oh, shit, it's in the 90s, so about 97 maybe, mm. I think. It was 380,000 yen, which is what now about four and a half grand today. Yeah. Uh, 20 years ago or more. Uh, hang on, 15, about 15, 16 years ago. So the the... the 
only guitar that expensive uh, up until recent times where everything's gone really expensive was, say, the, the Michael Ament Ninja when he was with ESP, the custom shop one, was about yeah. 395,000 yen. Mm. So I put that into perspective. Michael Ament, right back to when Kerry King was in Slayer, his guitar back then was the same price as Michael Ament's was yeah. when it was when he was with ESP uh, with Arch Enemy. Yeah. A very rare guitar, sought after for, for Slayer collectors. I got a lot of Jeff Hanneman models, but... Um, and you never realised these things were going to be rare until something controversial happened or, you know, they got withdrawn because of something or, or uh, the colour got changed. You don't, buy, you don't set out to buy guitars that are going to be limited unless you've got a lot of money. Mm. Like, if a guitar is one of 25, it's going to be very expensive, if you yeah. know that going into it, right? Then in, and people say, oh, it'll be worth money in the future to me, but I'm not a, I'm not a stock advisor. Mm. I would tell them that I don't know, but the chances are that in 20 years, 20 years when you go to sell your one, uh, there'll still be 25 of them around, but it'll be harder to find them. It's not like when your grandmother had your, your dad's, you know, your, your, your grandfather's last Paul under the bed, they made 2,000 of them, but now they've only found X amount of them because things got chucked out. If you spend $25,000 on a guitar today, your whole fucking family knows it's going to be worth money and your kids and your grandkids, you know what I mean? They're, <laughs> they're not going to be let to forget the fact this is expensive, don't fuck this up. Yeah. <laughs> so the rarity factor is going to cost you money to begin with. Yeah. And it's not going to necessarily appreciate it. But sometimes they'll make a guitar and they only make it very briefly mm. for whatever reason. You know, like, well, Michael Amon left ESP just after he got his last two siege ones and I only had one of each here in Australia. Mm. And that's the only ones that got it. So whether Michael Hammond guitars become expensive down the track depends what Michael Hammond does in part. Mm. But eventually, that's a rare guitar. So someone's going to want it, whether it's Michael Hammond or not. They might just be a completist and they like to collect certain periods or whatever. They are rare guitars, you know, accidentally. That's how most people come across something that, that, that's going to earn them some money down the track. But I never sell a guitar telling someone it's going to be worth more money later on. I think that's bullshit. Because yeah. I can't predict it. No, that's it. That's it. And so, um, so your your rare Hammett one there is going to be sitting with you uh, indefinitely. Mark won't be able to get his hands on it. You know, I rarely ever sell them. And I had to sell a couple when we built our house that I probably wish I... Well, I didn't have to, but I did. Um, I wish I hadn't because I just missed them. Mm. But I don't get to play them very often. The irony of owning a guitar shop is you get to play fuck all guitar. <laughs> um, so, but but those things are hard to get, and they're harder to acquire again. So, if I let it go, then how am I going to get another one? Sort of That's thing. It's like the, uh, the original Ouija I've got as well, the Hammett one that the first Ouija he had. You know, you just can't find those things for sale. Mm. And I, I mean, I've still got all my Jason Eight Hundreds, my amps that I started playing in the eighties, yeah. and I acquire them here and there. But I haven't been able to buy one in years, years because they've either got more expensive or they're just hard to find. Mm. Um, and I didn't just buy them because they were there. It had to represent something that I didn't already have in a Jason Eight Hundred, or you know, some have got different mods and some of stock and whatever else. But um, if I don't need to sell them, you know, I'm not going to not going to do so just because. Yeah, someone's made me good offer because I'll worry, I'll, I'll regret it later because getting it back is harder than selling it initially. Well, I, I kind of like the idea of Mark not getting his hands on it, so make sure you keep it. He's got enough. He's, He's got only got enough. two fucking hands. <laughs> and then if he plays it, then it'll make it, you know, it, it will have been played much better than I ever played it, and so therefore I'll never get it back because <laughs> he won't want to come back. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I sort of I tried to keep all the BMF things we did, those special runs I did. Yep. There's a couple I'm missing, but I tried to keep them just for prosperity's sake or whatever the term is. A yep. um, couple of guitars that I sort of trade back and forth with Mark over time that, that we've just traded back and forth with ourselves that, that are still in our possession. Um, just things I've picked up here and there, but, you know, um, it, I guess as soon as you own it, shop it's a bit of a superannuation fund but there you go I've just banked my superannuation on the guitar going up I just said that I, <laughs> I don't feel guitars to go up but you know some of the rare things I, I like to keep them or the, the trade show things that they're, they're one offs or something like that but not for any other reason as I say that if I sell it it's, it's harder to get it back oh indeed definitely um I'm sure you remember um, just thinking of rare guitars, the the incident that occurred when we went to Japan a few years back and we went to the... Makoto took us to the factory. The, were, the Hanneman one. I was talking yeah. to Blake about this the other day. I thought, geez, I, never, I don't think I actually had the photos because you hosted Yeah, well, I've, um, I've, got, I've got a photo somewhere of the guy holding it and then I've yeah. got, I'll have to search through some old uh, discs, but I'm pretty sure I've got the original video. But um, for, for anyone listening, we went to this factory and they were making this custom guitar. It was actually for Jeff. I think it was it was a surprise present, and it had yeah, it was um, a Christmas the, present from his wife. Yeah, and it was and the artwork was uh, a tribute to his father or something who was in the war. Yeah, yeah, it had the double N on the end of it, the yeah. rather than a single N. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so you know we were we had our digital cameras and everything. We we're taking photos, and no one said anything, and so we're like, yeah, cool. And then I just was holding the camera all the time, filming everything as we we're going, and no one said a word. There was no no hints of us being inappropriate or whatever and I think maybe at the start I'm pretty sure one of us asked if we could and I think Makoto said it was okay or something or one of the guys said it was okay and I think we just I don't think anyone really thought ahead about what we would do with all this stuff and (laughs) and knowing that I'm a bit of a social networking whore and then I'll just everything goes online but um you know I filmed this this short video of the guy holding the guitar and and I chucked it up on YouTube I reckon it's sort of been finished and he was buffing it up yeah yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, chucked it up on YouTube, and you know, made sure I chucked all my Slayer tags in there and everything, so I got plenty of plenty of coverage, and the the views started going through the roof. And then um, I think it was I think it was you that contacted. Yeah, the, the forum, the the guy that admin the USA forum got in touch with me because he had my email address, and he said, "Oh, Matt's going fucking ballistic here. He's panicking. He needs you to get that video that you shared up. <laughs> like I'd shared it. Uh, can you get in touch with those guys and get that?" Yeah, and I think someone else had managed to get in touch with you I think as so, well. yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, the president had got to get that down because it's a Christmas present for, um, <laughs> for Jeff, Jeff from his wife and he doesn't know it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, shit, I'm in big trouble now. It's, uh, and then and then uh, I remember it was either yourself or, or Makoto had actually sent an email or something. And actually, I think Makoto may have emailed Mark possibly directly as well. Yeah. And um, I just remember an email back afterwards saying oh no it's fine like don't it's all good um, like because yeah. I was freaking out I thought oh shit we've burnt like any chances we've got of, <laughs> of, of solidifying like a long term relationship with Makoto and the guys over at the factory and whatever and uh, yeah. I just thought oh man I've blown this for the for the, for the band and then um, and then it was one of you guys had come back and said nah it's yeah, all good Herman's wife is blacklisting you over <laughs> everywhere overseas <laughs> 
Uh, and then, um, and then as years passed, and and you know, before obviously before Jeff passed away, but um, I I kept I kept thinking back to that video. I go, I wonder if it's okay to put up now. I'm sure you would have been given this present by now. I'm sure I can put it up. And I've always and I've always been reluctant to put it up there, but um, it's sitting around somewhere on a on a disc. The file. I think I saw it one more time. Um, Armand was Kerry King's tech, and he was. Uh, real sort of in the ESP circus because a big ESP fan. I think he sent me a picture of it hanging up once. Like, yeah. Uh, like, right in America and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, that was a cool time. He passed away a couple of years ago as well. Oh, right. Oh, actually, yeah, I do remember that. I remember, um, yeah. I remember reading about that. He was that. Kerry's tech. He wasn't, he wasn't just tech, but he, he was writing the guitars. He was writing the ESPs and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, I remember reading something about that a while a while back, yeah. Yeah, his, his uh, girlfriend or fiancé was Australian. She's from Melbourne. Oh, right. She'd come home and she was selling some stuff and she had an explorer up on Facebook and, of course, if you put an MX up for sale, everyone instantly thinks it's a fake. Yeah. There's a lot of Chinese flakes around. And she had, her asking price was 10 or 11 green, I think, which was actually uh, reasonable for what the thing was. Yeah. Yeah, and she popped with shit, don't know, you're selling a fake, fuck off, blah, 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 the real deal, you know. So I don't know if she withdrew the post eventually, but, yeah, straight away they jumped on it because it was an MX220, which is sort of known as the Eat Fuck Explorer, the one where oh, you yeah. Yeah. Uh, eat for, you know, that on it, um, with the middle finger inlays. Yeah. And I, years ago, there was one on Yahoo uh, Japan auction, and it was banged up to buggery, and, you know, I said, ah, oh, this is before internet really sort of took off, and, and MX has really got mental. And I said, ah, oh, I'll probably pay about eight fifty. You know, by the time I landed here, it'll cost me... You know, who knows, 1100 bucks or something like that, 1200 So I had the fellow in Japan bidding for me, and I told him, bid it up to 850 And I missed out, I went for 1000 bucks. And then I saw it about six months later, because you could tell from the hardware how it had been real pitted and pretty rooted. The person re-sprayed it, but they put a lot of that old hardware back on, and it went for about six and a half US. It, it went through the roof. Wow. And her asking about 11 I think it was, for this thing a few months ago or early this year, it's a fair price too. Because the guitar does not exist, mm. uh, you cannot get it built. There's very, very few of them around. Um, there are staggering collections around the world of some of the oddities that the ESP made one or two of. Um, that 34 years time, who knows? They might be the um, you know worth stupid amount of money. If evidence by that anything to do with Headfield mm. and his previous guitars, they will be. If you consider the Eat Fuck, there's a Wolf Demand Explorer that there is one or two of them kicking around. Yeah. Uh, like with the Wolf Demand inlay. Yeah. Um, all of his guitars, everyone knows what they are. Uh, everyone knows how rare they are. It's like the Hammett Mummy, mm. which only, well, there's more than, there's two, I think there's three or four Two with the hieroglyphic inlay and two with the sort of regular inlay, but one of them appeared on eBay. It turns out that it, it was Kirk's and it got back to Kirk, got it back. So somewhere, somehow, this must have got flogged. Right. But it, after it got flogged, it something and moved it on to someone else because whoever was selling it, I don't think, was responsible for that. Yeah. Had $75,000 on it. 75000 bucks. Someone with enough coin, because that could have been a Metallica fan in 1984. They might be wealthy now. Oh, yeah. You know, they will buy that, but it was the same one that was at the music mess in uh, Germany the year before, I think, because you could tell from a bit of a uh, figure on the rosewood of the fingerboard. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, that had got out of someone's sight, and it was out in the wild, and, and they told me, yeah, it's now back with Kirk. I didn't realise it was Kirk, so I didn't realise at the time that he owned them all, but there you go, uh, 75000 bucks. Oh. I mean, yeah, you can't get too much money for the animal guitars that are currently up there that they're trying to sell for charity. Oh, yeah, right. Eight and a half, ten thousand US. Yeah, just a, 
I guess the wrong time, but um, his, his digi camos and flick tone camos and things like that are super, super hard to get. Mm. Um, they would, and, and with the death's head inlays and some of those controversial inlays he had, they won't make them. Yeah. They wouldn't make them after 2004, which is when they made the one with the SS inlay because it was what Jeff had. Yeah. And as soon as that come out, for obvious reasons, bang, you know, the <laughs> we can't do that. Yeah. And I actually had ordered three of those guitars, the, the, the Urban Camo one, because we just ordered the guitars and they were announced. We didn't know too much about the specs. So this new Jeff Hammond guitar, we'll take three, please. Those three are the only ones that I know got made that way because straight after it, they, like they built out because ours were ordered first, they changed the inlay to a more PC kind of an inlay. PCs you can get with nut and signatures. And I sold one to a fella in uh, Florida. Yeah. Who sold it to a guy in Alaska, who sold it to a guy in Wales, who still got it, still plays it. To, the, to this day. I sold another to a guy in Kalgoorlie who sold it to his mate who, well, last I heard, was playing in church. <laughs> and uh, I, I kept one. So there's only three of those. Yeah. There was another one brought out the same period in Japan with a Kayla because they had Floyd Rose because Kayla was out of business. Uh, and Jeff used a Kayla, but they only had about 10 Kaylas according to Makoto at the time. So they don't really know how many they made, but they were making other guitars with Kayla, so they weren't exclusive to animals. Yeah, gotcha. There was one in the catalogue 2004 for the general catalogue, which is the Japanese catalogue. And there's a guy I know that owns that guitar. He knows it's the one from the catalogue, and I've never seen another one ever, except for Jeff's. And this guy owns it. He plays it every day. He's installed a kill switch on it. You know, it's a good, it's, the guitar's there for him to play. He's not going to uh, put it away and baby it and whatever else. So yeah. the rarity of things is unintentional. Mm. You know, they stopped making it because of the inlay or you know, the, the artist left the company or whatever happens. You know, but I think those are the gems that you, you can't pick them, obviously. Well, that's it. And it's it's just pure luck if you're just right place, right time, pick up a guitar and, uh, and then uh, circumstances may change and you could yeah. end up with something pretty special and and that's probably it's probably got more charm to it anyway because it's as you said it wasn't intentional it's not like a a limited edition yeah, custom run of 10 guitars you kind of know where they all went with like with those three i mentioned i know exactly where they are yeah not because i'm um, obsessing over it just you just followed their path and and somehow someone always gets back in and mentions it so i show never you know do you know anything about this because because you're not a it's not a, a massive um a name in, in that guitar, uh, if you do a bit of Googling, then you'll come across mine or, or the other guys, and therefore, you know, say the one in Calgary got sold, mm. you'd find it again. Yeah. It, it just turn itself up. It's it's quite remarkable. It's, and it's fun. It's it's fun to know where they are, what guys are doing with them, because playing guitar, first and foremost, is, is the, the best thing for them. Mm. But to see them being used in these guys' bands or in church, <laughs> uh, they're getting used, you know. I mean, I don't get a chance to use mine, but at least these ones are getting used. Oh, cool. Absolutely, and people are actually enjoying it for the for for its intended purpose, and and then just the fact that they're you know they're more or less almost one offs, and yeah. uh, they're they're extremely rare and unique is just a bonus, a bit of cream on on top. Yeah, I yeah. get a kick out of all that, but I also get a kick out of I, I find myself smiling when a kid, like a six or seven year old kid, come in to buy their first guitar, you know, and they're mm. pumped, they're really excited about it, but they're they're reserved, they're all they're, they're holding back, and you see how excited they are. Because you, you know, because I remember it, you know. Yeah. And and I always smile them when they're leaving because it's just as cool to sell them a ninety dollar guitar as to sell some of these custom things. You think because there could be the start of a journey, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, you never know where they're going to end up. Probably take it home and throw it in the bed, but that could be anything. 
Oh. The, the possibilities are endless, you know? Absolutely. I still remember going to Alan's Music in Brisbane and buying a shitty Proax guitar with a, one of those Park practice amps. Yep. And, uh, and you know, just standing in front of the mirror in my bedroom pretending I'm James Hetfield. And, oh, but, yeah. but it was just the, the biggest rush uh, having... I mean, I was playing my dad's old Ibanez acoustic guitar that was way too big for me trying to throw my arm over the top of the body to try and pluck the strings. And then suddenly I had this yeah. sort of slick... You know, it was a cheap piece of shit guitar, but it was, a, it was an electric guitar and it's suddenly had a, bit of, had a bit of gain. And, oh, suddenly I was... I was uh, I thought I was in Metallica and it was fantastic. It was just such a yeah. rush, a huge rush. And, oh, uh, yeah, but uh, I, I can... To be able to see that and, and you know, be in the position that you are, to be able to sort of be part of that for, for, for young people, and, and I reckon that's really cool, to be able to sort of relive it yeah. over and over again. Oh, I get a kick out of it. And you, you see the look on their faces, and they say a lot of them just eventually chuck it in, but possibilities you never know. Oh. It's, it's just, just cool, and it's cool that they've chosen to do that and, and not go and get another Xbox game or something like that. Yeah, I, I really like it. Yeah. And uh, I, I do I do, do a little bit of teaching again now to help out my uh, kids' school. And they're only primary school kids. And I haven't taught primary school kids in 20 years. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's cool. And, and they enjoy it and they're getting excited and, and they get together at lunchtime and they're playing their guitars together. And you, you're getting to revisit that all the time, that what you went through. Even yeah. though I, I, I was... Uh, I actually played organ in year six and seven. Yeah. This is when the organ was cool, so you shut up before you <laughs> make all your jokes about organ. With the dual keyboard. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember, still got the pieces because I didn't throw nothing out. I've got the Karma Chameleon sheet music because I wanted to learn Karma Chameleon. And I was gutted when my teacher <laughs> said I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't ready for that. I'm, I'm, you know, you're not good enough to take Karma Chameleon yet. You know, you've got to learn Misty and all these other things. <laughs> Went in the uh, Yamaha Electone organ competition and so on. And I remember telling my parents I didn't want to do it anymore. And no, I said, I'm real sad and devastated. You know, I didn't want to keep playing. And I was upset. And, but then year nine came around and I uh, could choose an instrument you know, in high school. And my brother said, oh, you should play the saxophone. Clarence Clements from Bruce Springsteen band, he plays the saxophone. He's cool. So, okay, so I, I did the sax. And sax is actually my main instrument all the way through tertiary education as well. Yeah, right. But you pick up guitar, you know, through high school and, and um, playing, I think one of the first songs I learned was Panama, weirdly enough, <laughs> rather than smoking on water. <laughs> and I bought an uh, electric from the local music shop that was here at the time. It was an Aria Pro 2 and, um, you know, do guitars after that but yeah, I played some sax in one of them bands actually we, we covered the Angels you know um, what is the song that had a sax solo in one of the, one of the Angels songs had a sax solo and so we mm. did that along with Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Cross knows what else but yeah that was my main thing and I still have the sax and I still can teach it but um uh, guitar has been the main thing ever since. Uh, but yes, it was organ. That was my first instrument. Did you end up ever learning Karma Chameleon? I did not. No. So... Arsehole. <laughs> well, that's probably why I gave up, because I had aspirations to be Boy George, and this <laughs> teacher was holding me back. Yeah. I didn't know all the Boy George's quibbles and quirks at the time, if I was in year six. You're an innocent and, boy um, then. Exactly. It was, it was cool music. Uh, but that's the full full hog, you know, the two keyboards with the bass pedals and everything, the, the yeah. Thomas organ, the whole nine yards, not this bloody keyboard business, the <laughs> organ, man. And then I 
people to this day, old people come in and say, oh, I've got an old organ at home. I'm trying to get rid of things. Poor bastard. I remember when they were thousands of dollars mm. and you can you cannot give them away anymore. You literally cannot give them away. You can't even give them to some of the salvos. Yeah. Um, or, or do you have anyone that comes in and fixes organs? Like, oh, God. And then, of course, all the jokes go through my mind that my mates have always done over the years. Oh, he was playing with his organ all that yeah, yeah. You know, the old people standing in front of me want to know if I can come in and fix their organ. And, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, and you change the sounds of the little flick switches, you know, oh, tuba, oh, French horn, and so forth. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, my, five, you know, I might drag out that come chameleon. I was going to say, uh, it sounds like... Uh, a life achievement that hasn't been unlocked, and you, and I think it's something that you you need to fulfill and, and tick off that that's list. That's what's missing. Yeah, that's, that's it. Exactly what's missing. That's it. Yeah. That, those those times where you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, that and you can't work out why. That's that's exactly what it is. And I find myself going, boy, boy. <laughs> and in on the saxophone, it was in uh, Infinity by Guru Josh. Oh, right. You might have to look up. Yeah. As soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, shit, that's what that is. Oh, oh man. Uh, I, I'm still with the shit music for that, too. But I also, you know, this is a time when you used to buy sheet music, tab books, and whatever else, and yeah. it was Metallica, and um, I reckon I've got Sabotage books, and yeah, right. God knows what. I've kept it all sheet music. And then guitar magazines, I was, I'm, oh, shit, I must have thousands of them. Yeah. Because there used to be three or four of them. There used to be guitar for the practicing musician, maximum guitar, guitar school, guitar world. Um, and then when Australian Guitar wrote, uh, launched, I actually wrote for them. I wrote a thing on modes oh, right. for the first six issue. I think it was like a bi-monthly thing at the time. Mm. The first issue that came out, they had a backing track on it for uh, Back in Black. But the backing track, they must have recorded it in two tracks somehow, but the, the, the backing track bled over the top of itself. It was terrible. <laughs> so the two licks after the dinner, the two licks after that over the top of one another I don't know what went wrong <laughs> but it was yeah the first six issues I think was this um, serial because I'd, I'd written it years before it was called um, uh, something about uh, modes no more mystery or something like that because as, as a saxophone player or any other instrument besides guitar modes aren't as confusing as they are to guitar players yeah. guitar players just see things in shapes mm. So I'd written this thing and I'd, I'd put it online. It was and it was just very basic uh, back then website, websites, obviously. And some guy overseas actually asked if he could turn it into a PDF for me or something because it was in like several different pages, you know, across web pages. And this bloke did it all for me, and I, I've lost that since. But uh, then that magazine, so they used to pay you per fifteen hundred words or something. I can't quite remember how much it was, but I thought oh, that's pretty cool. They wanted to write this thing, and then that became. A, a serial thing and the thing is because there were six parts to the original thing online and so I think it was a bi-monthly magazine it must have been over a year or something like that mm. um, and that's kind of a lot of what I taught it was it was mode stuff you know I, I um, taught a lot a lot of the kids I, or they were high school kids or whatever at the time a lot of them went on to be teachers themselves and went on to uni and stuff like that which is really cool as well um, and others uh, I, I think mate, a lot of them are still playing which is cool and a lot of them are in bands again you know they've, they've got to a point in life where they've got a chance to play again because they're these, these students more than 20 years ago mm, and mm. they've reconnected with their mates and they're starting up a punk band or something just for fun which is what <laughs> music should be at first and foremost oh, for absolutely. fun absolutely if anything else happens that's it's, a bonus it's a bonus yeah. when you at my age you know, like a friend of mine the drummer I used to always play with is in a, a cover band and he asked if I wanted to sort of join up with them and play with them but my time is really limited mm. 
I said, I'll give you a, 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 um, five songs, and if I can learn them on, the, on a weekend, then I'll, I'll think about it. And he gave me the five songs, and I learned them, and he said, oh, so you learn them? I said, yeah, it was a long weekend. So <laughs> every weekend was a long weekend. But one of them was a U2 song, and I, I hate U2. <laughs> so, and I thought, nah, I haven't got enough time to play what I want to play. I'll be forcing myself to play things I don't want to play in the time that I haven't got to play what I want to play. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to play with him because it'd be so much fun to do like we used to do, regardless of what we were playing, but you two might be a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has their limitations. Everyone's got their line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you've got to learn where... And I'd have to buy a delay pedal. Ah, oh, yeah. No, yeah. you don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't want to drag out an old Jason May 100 stack and an old Les Paul we used to use and then I'd get to the venue and they oh we can't play that loud anymore oh, oh yeah that's right yeah oh yeah because well, the TAB's on all the you know you've just got to wait till the Sky Racing finish before you can kick off and you know <laughs> yeah it's a bit different in there these days that's for sure yeah yeah there you go oh mate alright well I'm going to let you go and uh, I don't know how long we've been chatting for but uh, oh a couple of hours that's pretty good. Shit, yeah. Good effort. You, you've been the longest one so far. Oh, yes. See, and I wasn't even talking about computers that are made out of fucking molecules or whatever. Okay, that was a full on. And it didn't I even... I tried hard to get it. Uh, and it didn't even... Uh, it didn't get too smutty either. We, um, we managed to avoid a lot of that, so... I guess maybe because yeah, we're, right. we're probably not drunk, so... Um, no, I believe that for the Enigma bar. Yeah, that's exactly right. What's that? Uh, uh, May, uh, May, November 13th, the Enigma bar. That's, that's it, just I for see, yes. Plug. yes. So hopefully you can make it, it out me. Friday night. Yep. Get, get, a, get a pass, and, yep. uh, and we'll see if, uh, we'll see if uh, the old uh, Fieldy's uh, in town. I don't know I if think he's, he's, uh, he's in town next week. I don't know if he'll be back by then because it's about a two-day trek for him to get home. Yeah, oh, and then another crazy. two days back again. Well, I've actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, chuck him on the podcast. Uh, I think next week or the week after or something. So uh, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna quiz him about his adventures out in the middle of bloody nowhere and uh, and get. You can some... ask about my panel van and Port Vincent. Oh yeah. 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 Oh. That was a, it was a shock for me. Just it's a, you know he'll give you the story. Okay, all right. I'll uh, I'll make a note of that. Panel van at Port Vincent. Port Vincent, hey. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I did. um, I have to admit, I did hit him up today asking for a bit of goss on you. Um, Oh right. uh, right. I'm surprised he didn't. uh, You weren't surprised when I threw a few different things at you, especially um, Azriel's monkey and and your reverse (laughs) scamming on your Nigerian uh, Nigerian mates. And um, he gave me a bunch of other things, but he said, "Oh, I I won't give you all the juicy stuff because he's he's." uh, I don't want I don't want things to go to get awkward. I know a lot of, a lot of uh, so he didn't give you the park bench thing. No, I don't know what the park bench is. No, oh, good. he didn't give. No. <laughs> um, that's okay. We're laughing. We'll 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 uh, we'll leave that to mystery. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sounds good. All right, mate. Well, uh, right, we'll talk to you soon. I'll see you in November. Good on you, mate. Take it easy. Thanks, mate. Bye. See ya. Whew. So that was a bit of a lengthy one. Uh, so I hope you made it to the end i guess if you're listening to this then you probably did so thank you so much for listening as always the usual stuff 
iTunes, rate me, review me, get on Facebook, like and comment on as much stuff as you can, share pictures, share episodes. If there's any episode in particular that you do enjoy and you think that there might be one or two little snippets out of that episode that could be of benefit to somebody, pass it on. Let somebody know. Uh, and you know, the more listeners that are tuning in and the more activity I can get around this entire thing, uh, the bigger and better it's going to be. Uh, you know and it'll continue to go forth from there but yeah thank you so much for listening and continuing to listen and welcome again to those people who are li- tuning in for the first time hope you stick around and as said before this episode was not brought to you by my 1997 championship season under 14 boys runners-up trophy from the Redcliffe Basketball Association pictures will be on Facebook and Once again, I encourage you to take any photos of any crappy trophies or medals or certificates or anything that you've got over the years. Coming up, I've got um, a couple more really cool people lined up for for interviews and one that's uh, coming up very soon. By the time this comes out, we'll probably be... next week got some big big names coming up uh in the near future but um you know at the moment we just uh i'm i've got a long list of people and sometimes the people that you might not know straight off the bat are usually more interesting than your uh, your really sort of more well-known people but uh, look i hope you enjoy the conversation and the format and the way that it's uh it's recorded and continue to tune in and listen to it thank you and we'll speak soon ta-ta you're a